Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at Numung Ba. Follow it, learn what you can along the way. When you find the Colonel, infiltrate his team by whatever means available and terminate the Colonel's command. beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct. And he is still in the field commanding troops. Terminate with extreme prejudice. Hello and welcome to the Director's Wall podcast, Coppola Cast Season 2. I'm one of your co-hosts, A.J. Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly. All right. So we finally made it here to what may or may not be our biggest episode ever, which is only fitting because we're talking about Apocalypse Now. (laughs) Yeah, I think this this may be longer. Let's try to go longer than the work print. Let's try to push to 289 minutes. Can we do it? I think we can do it. I mean, there are podcasts that are longer than that. (laughs) Exactly. Why not? There's no rules in this world. We're in the lawless land of podcasts. It's not like network television where you have to hit a certain time. It's like whatever you want. What are you drinking? Let's talk about the wines first before we go into this uh, nine-hour discussion. What do you got? So I have the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Monterey County Pinot Noir 2017. I thought the darkest of all wines would be appropriate. (laughs) I don't know that it's the darkest, but it's got the word noir in it. Uh, It says on the back here, our Pinot Noir boasts a silky texture and dazzling perfume of crusted, I'm sorry, of crushed raspberries, rose petals, and tea leaves, followed by luscious flavors of plums, strawberries, and spice. Pairs perfectly with pork tenderloin or mushroom risotto. How's it taste? Tastes pretty good. I'm doing the uh, Sophia Brut Rosé. Ooh. Have we done this one before? I, I don't think so. No, I think the Sophia ones, but I don't think it was the Rosé. Uh, I can't remember exactly which Sophia I had, but I had one for the uh, um, our Gatsby episode. Yeah, I, w- I went with the lighter uh, one than you. So yeah, I did the Brut Rosé 2018, Francis Coppola. And it doesn't have a story on it like the other ones do. It just has, well, there's like a little hexagon on the front. And it just says words so the words are reactionary poetic sparkling ebullient effervescent fragrant cold cool coming of age bestowing of presence petulant revolutionary okay i don't know if that's describing sophia coppola perhaps uh it could but it's really good it's uh i usually don't like rosé but i like i like this one this one is it's a sparkling one which is great and it's really nice and dry. It tastes just like a good, crisp, uh, you know, sparkling wine. But with that little bit of bitterness from a rosé, it's great. 
And yeah. I bet I will finish all of it by the time we finish our episode. I don't know that I can pick out all the different fruit flavors in this Pinot Noir, but it does taste good and fruity. I like it. Yeah. I'll have to try that one. It's hard because of COVID that we're each trying different wines because it's just whatever we can find when we, you know, go out into the world. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to coordinate. So whose who's turn is it to do the plot? Well, I did the plot summary in quotes of Godfather Saga. Okay. I'm, I'm willing to do the plot for Apocalypse Now since that one, last one, didn't really, doesn't really count, I think. Um. Yeah, Unless you want to do it. I'm going to talk plenty already. I'm going to save my breath. So. All right. So, all right. So the film begins with a scene, a shot of the jungle exploding with napalm being dropped on it and helicopters zooming in front of the, uh, in front of the flames pretty slowly. And then we see Martin Sheen, who's just having a, like a drunken, freak out in his hotel room doing like martial arts in his underwear and he punches a mirror and cuts his hand and just cries <laughs> and then and he's given a mission from the like intelligence branch of the army it's a secret cia mission and we find out that maybe he is a cia assassin we don't get a lot of background on willard but he's sent by uh, a general who an IMDb is credited as General Corman, which would be a nod to Roger Corman. Yep. Coppola's mentor at one point. Uh, he's played by uh, G.D. Spratlin, who was the corrupt senator in Godfather Part Two, And his right-hand man functionary is Harrison Ford, once again, playing a Coppola functionary to the lead guy, to the man at the top. He plays a role called Colonel Lucas, the original director of this movie, his friend George Lucas. And then there's a guy in just plain clothes uh, sitting in the back. And he's actually the first assistant director of the movie. <laughs> they just had him play the role. He's uh, told that there is a Green Beret Colonel, Colonel Kurtz, Marlon Brando, who has gone insane and is conducting the war on his own, like, uh, insane, horrendous uh, terms. And he's gone off deep into the jungle, and he has an army of uh, Vietnamese natives, sorry, an army of Montagnard natives, along with a few renegade, I guess, American and Vietnamese troops. And his mission is to go up river, find Colonel Kurtz, and terminate the Colonel's command. Terminate with extreme prejudice. One of my favorite lines. So uh, Willard is army, and he is on a Navy patrol boat with a whole nice cast of characters. We've got the chief, played by Albert Hall, who's, you know, stern, does his job, by the book kind of guy. There's Chef, played by Frederick Forrest, who is the machinist on the boat. He's not the chef. 
Then there's Lance, played by Sam Bottoms, who's this spacey surfer, famous surfer from Malibu. And then there's Clean, Mr. Clean, a seven, young 17-year-old, played by 14-year-old Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne had a few birthdays on this movie. It took so long to film. <laughs> but he was 14 when it started. So they've got to go upriver. The only place they can enter the river is uh, controlled by the North Vietnamese or the Viet Cong. And they have to be escorted in by the air cavalry headed by Colonel Kilgore, Robert Duvall, in maybe one of the most iconic characters in cinema. It's a brilliant role. He's got his cavalry hat on like a cowboy hat he's just larger than life bullets whiz by him he's not phased by explosions and he's really into surfing he finds out that this famous surfer lance is is part of willard's mission so then he agrees to go out of his way to help willard and maybe surf with the famous uh, surfer so that leads them to that leads them to attack a village and maybe the most famous scene of the movie, all the helicopters flying into battle set to right of the Valkyries. They, depending on which version you watch, and we'll talk about this later, they either then leave Colonel Kilgore or they escape Colonel Kilgore. <laughs> uh, and they continue their traveling up the river and they encounter just a whole bunch of bizarre, surreal, uh, surreal events. They come across a Playboy Bunny show, a USO show of Playboy Bunnies uh, they're, that are dancing around an army helicopter and the crowd goes like so crazy that they jump the uh, barrier and try to get at the Playboy Bunnies and the MC of the event you can tell has maybe experienced this before and he reaches into his coat pocket and just pulls out a smoke grenade, lets it go and grabs the bunnies and they fly away. Like he just had that smoke grenade right in his pocket, ready to go. Then they encounter a, uh, just a Vietnamese uh, fishing boat, uh, a sampan and they inspect it. It's one of their routine things that this uh, Navy patrol boat does. And Willard doesn't want them to stop. He wants them to go on with the mission. But Chief says, like, we have to stop and inspect these boats. That's what we do. And like with everything in Vietnam, it all goes horribly wrong. Even <laughs> though we went, we did it by the book. Chief did it by the book. And everyone did it by the book. But someone moves too quickly and Lawrence Fishburne is too young and he's on the big machine gun and he gets startled and shoots, starts shooting and everyone shoots and they kill this whole family. And it turns out that the woman who made a sudden move, she was just trying to protect a puppy that she thought the uh, Americans would take away from her. And they do take the puppy, which I guess is the smart move aside from leaving it on a shot up boat. Then depending on, again, which version you watch, we'll talk about it. They, uh, they get attacked. We don't know by who. Lawrence Fishburne dies. He's the first one to die. 
And after that, they encounter, well, in Redux, they go to the French plantation. In the normal version, they don't. They get lost in the fog of the river and they're attacked again by bows and arrows. And it seems like they're little toy arrows. They're not hurting them until a big spear comes and stabs Albert Hall from behind. And Albert Hall, with his dying breath, tries to bring Willard onto the spear and kill him. <laughs> so that leaves Willard, the chef, and Lance. They make it to they make it to Kurtz's camp, which is set up. It's designed like this macabre death fortress. It's got dead bodies strewn up on trees and heads, de decapitated severed heads all around. Like the production design of a Rob Zombie movie. Like this is what it's <laughs> aspiring towards. Uh, there we meet maybe the weirdest character in the movie? I don't know. A photojournalist played by Dennis Hopper, who's this totally spaced out 60s guy who's just, man, he's so high strong, man, and he's got all these cameras around him, and he's just so tense and, and just always, like, re re ready to snap, man. <laughs> uh, Willard is overwhelmed by the by the natives and locked up and then taken to Kurtz who's Marlon Brando fatter than you might expect and in shadow and he's reading poetry and he knows why Willard has come here and it's a very weird sequence we'll break it down because he knows why Willard is there but he lets Willard go and just kind of roam around the camp and see Kurtz kills the chef and then that night there's this big uh, ritual uh, ritual killing of a big water buffalo and that's when Willard finally kills Kurtz not unlike the way that these natives kill the water buffalo then he gets back on the boat and leaves. Then, then <laughs> seems so simple. <laughs> it, it's um, I don't know if it's because, <laughs> and there's no there's no credits at the beginning of the movie at all, which is interesting. The movie just starts, doesn't say apocalypse now, doesn't say anything, just begins. And then I guess when the movie originally came out, there was no ending credits either. So you just got like a pamphlet in the movie theater that just told you it was like going to an opera or something that just told you who made the movie. So the movie just starts and then it just ends and you're like, okay. <laughs> and apparently uh, the name, the title of the movie has to appear somewhere on film for it to be copyrighted. So if you noticed when they arrive at the Kurtz camp uh, graffitied on one of the steps up to the temple are the words apocalypse now <laughs> just kind of random there in the background and that allowed them to copyright the movie properly <laughs> so i don't know about you and i don't know if it's because i've been brainwashed by watching you know four plus versions of this movie in the last few weeks but i really like this movie a lot like i thought i liked it 
But now that I've just like, it's all I've watched for <clears throat> the entire month of August. And now I'm just like, man, this is like a really, really, I, I took this movie for granted, I guess. Like I, I knew it was great. I did love it at some point in my life as a young person, but I guess I just kind of haven't watched it in a while. I'm watching it again and then watching it over and over again. I'm like, man, this is a really, this is maybe one of the great movies of all time. I totally agree. I <laughs> love this movie. I was just so happy watching it every time, all the different versions. And I mean, we'll, we'll get in to why, but uh, yeah, for the longest time, like I saw this movie first time I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something. And my dad was trying to get convince me to not join any of the military branches. <laughs> so he let me watch or he showed me uh, Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket. And yeah, that did it. <laughs> I wasn't going <laughs> to volunteer for that. I'm surprised you didn't sneak Platoon in the middle and made it really make sure that it worked. <laughs> casualties of war just like go all in on yeah. uh, the bad times yeah my dad served in the navy in the mid-70s he had an older brother who also served in the navy during vietnam and then he had another older brother who was in the army uh actually in cambodia during uh the heavy parts of the war so he you know had <laughs> had cause to uh keep me away from that if possible Anywho, uh, so yeah, and then I just, it was like, wow, that's cool. It got weird at the end. I don't get it. And I just didn't really go back to it aside from watching the Redux cut when I got a hold of that. And I didn't like that version when I saw it. And then when we started doing this podcast, that was around the time when the final cut was released. And then I watched the final cut. I got to see it in theaters at the uh, Austin Film Society awesomefilm.org support them if you can uh and i loved it i was just it just hit me <laughs> and i think part of the reason was this was around the time of the um most recent oscars uh, last year's oscars and uh, 1917 was out it was the front runner for a long time and there was a tweet from Matt Zoller Seitz, who's the editor-in-chief of the RogerEbert.com, and he tweeted something about 1917 that I don't agree with, but what he said about Apocalypse Now, I do agree with. His tweet was that 1917, like Apocalypse Now, is not a war movie, but a horror movie about war. And I don't really concur on 1917, but I, that made me realize, yes, Oh my God, yes, Apocalypse Now is a horror movie. <laughs> a war. It's so surreal and nightmarish and unsettling and disturbing and it plods along really slowly. Yeah, and I feel like the imagery gets more upsetting as the movie goes on. And uh, it's, it definitely feels like, it, does, it doesn't feel like a war movie by the end of it. Like it feels more like the Temple of Doom. Or something by the, by the end. Um, I first saw this movie when I was 13 as well, around that time, and I loved it. I could not wait to watch it over and over again. So I bought the VHS of it through Columbia House, joined Columbia House, got the 12 free videotapes. It came in a big box. 
And in that box was a uh, Forrest Gump, Shawshank Redemption, uh, Animal House, Excalibur, and Apocalypse Now. And it was like the best day of my life when that box showed up. Uh, and this is the only movie of those that I'm kind of still into as much as I was back, <laughs> back then at the batch. But, oh, and Four Weddings and a Funeral was in there too. Great movie. Uh, but, uh, and I just was so, and I think I'm not the only one. Like, I think a lot of young boys my age from that time was really into this movie. And we watched a lot. I mean, quote, it's a very quotable movie. And it's a very memorable movie. And it's like, it's amazing to think that like young kid would have the tolerance to sit through a, like a three hour movie, but I did. And my friends did. And yeah, we watched it constantly. And then I kind of, I think, I don't know if I burnt out or just was like, oh, I'm into movies now. So I'm going to watch like a million other movies. I don't need to rewatch any movie ever again. And I kind of shelved Apocalypse Now. And now I'm like, why haven't I been saying this? Whenever people ask me what one of my favorite movies is, why isn't this grouped in there? Because it totally is now after watching it over and over again. Like, I can't think of a movie that's 160 minutes plus, And I had to keep, I watched it every day this week, every different version. And every time I was excited to watch it, there wasn't a time where like, I got to watch a longer version of this or I got to watch it. I was like, so fascinated and excited with every viewing. I felt completely the same way. And yeah, there's very few movies I could think of. Uh, I mean, there are movies I watch every year. I'm always excited to watch Eyes Wide Shut at Christmas time. (laughs) As he should be, and Valentine's Day. <laughs> but yeah, every time I put it on, I was I was absolutely thrilled to watch it. Uh, I was just excited and, and noticing things I didn't notice the other times, or just taking them in a new way. And gosh, like, is it really pretentious of me to say that? Apocalypse Now is not a movie you watch, but a movie you experience. No, that's a quote. That's a quote for the box. That's a good. That's good. It's true. That's that's what I felt like. Like I was really being transported, not like physically thrown into what it is like to be in a horrific war, a battle, like with Oliver Stone's platoon. Yeah. But transported psychologically to experience the other surreal incongruous absurdity of these things that you're seeing that are simultaneously like thrilling and exciting and even beautiful but also horrific and disturbing yeah. and just totally don't make any sense in a world where uh you know we have a civilization a civilization of any kind and, and i think it's like it's back to Coppola doing an experimental film. We talked about how Codfather 2 was him going back to making like a personal thing, even though it was a big movie. But this feels like more like the rain people than anything he made since then. It's like, this is like an art, it's an art film, basically. Like it's really uh, just experimental and surreal and very dreamy. And uh, definitely a lot of that is due to the cinematography by uh, Vittorio Storaro, is that how you say it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, and so there's a lot of like colors and like a lot of smoke and like the scene where they go off the boat and they're attacked by a tiger is like this beautiful, weird kind of blue color. And there's a lot of purple and there's a lot of like harsh you know, reds and oranges. And it just sort of all has this dreamy feel. And you get it right off the bat from the movie the beginning 
because you have, you see a helicopter, but you don't hear the sound of a helicopter. You hear like a synthesized version of a helicopter. And then we go to uh, Willard's room, Martin Sheen's room, and the fan in there has the sound of a helicopter. So they're already playing with sound and you're getting lots of like superimpositions like of people's faces over images. And it feels like, you know, more like a, like an experimental film, like a student film almost like, like this isn't normally how a movie even begins and the whole movie. And I think maybe because of its plotless nature too, like, even though there's like kind of the plot, it's, there's not, it's really just a series of these moments and these people kind of come and go and sometimes without reason as to where they went. And it just kind of feels like a dream. It really does. Because yeah, the beginning of this movie, like it lets you know right away what kind of movie you're going to watch. Like you're not going to watch a traditional, like, you know, gung-ho uh, war movie like they made in, you know, the 40s and 50s and even early 60s. This is not like a John Wayne type movie. It begins with the helicopters and the napalm and then Martin Sheen's face imposed, super, uh, in, superimposed upside down over all of this with the doors at the end, very dreamy, surreal song, and just like all the fire and the explosions. And then also superimposed is uh, the image of a, a statue head like a tribal statue head and it goes on for a while like for like five minutes and then when that stops it's uh martin sheen giving us his narration about how he's in saigon he's still only in saigon and <laughs> you get the feeling that he doesn't really know how he got there he's just kind of trapped there and doing his like drunken tai chi and freaking out and that's the beginning of a war movie and so <laughs> like a lot of problems people had at the time with apocalypse now that i imagine you'd still have if the movie didn't work for you is that the ending doesn't work the ending doesn't match up with whatever with the two hours that just came before it but the ending does match up with this introduction very surreal and dreamlike and low-key and just not what you would expect it's not how you expect a war movie to begin it's not how you expect a war movie to end and i was reminded of the conversation watching this which has this brilliant anti anticlimactic ending that is somehow very satisfying and this movie also has this anticlimactic ending which is very satisfying and <laughs> Willard and uh Harry Call in the conversation to me have some parallels they're really quiet mm -hmm. passive characters and they have uh you know potentially like unsavory pasts to them yeah but unlike the conversation this movie has great narration so you don't just have a blank uh, you know, page that is this character that Martin Sheen's playing. You get, you know, so much through his internal monologue. And it's great. And it's one of the best narrations in any movie ever. Like it's up there with a uh, taxi driver and like election as like some of the, in, in like some of the good Sc other Scorsese stuff of like just great narration. And what's funny is it was, it was an afterthought. Like the movie originally was just done 
but without narration. And then they decided after the movie was done to add narration and hired another writer to just do the narration, Michael Hare, who was a journal, like he was a, uh, a correspondent during the Vietnam War. And they brought him in to do the narration. And it's so good. And it, 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 it's a good, I think it's a good lesson for anyone who wants to write narration. It's, like, it's a great narration because it gives you some plot, but it's all about character. It's all about his view of like the people on the boat and sort of like what he thinks about this whole situation he's in. Like if you didn't have the narration, you wouldn't really know Marlon Brando's character that much. It's a lot of him pondering and wondering about Kurtz and reading like these, these uh, dossiers and going through these uh, files and like and kind of talking about and commenting on all of it. And it's so good. And like, I, it's, it's like, it makes the movie even better. I couldn't imagine it not being there and just having Martin Sheen just kind of staring quietly watching. <laughs> and there's movies where they have characters like that and that works, but like, I'm so glad that they added the narration for this. Me too. Uh, I, I can't imagine how you would know as much about Kurtz without Martin Sheen's narration. And it's, yeah, not purely expository. He's reading about Kurtz's life, learning about Kurtz's background. <laughs> but it, it's putting you in Martin Sheen's mindset, like really building up a puzzle about this guy, this really uh, like prominent soldier who was so like, just like so dedicated to the army and he joins the like special forces, the Green Berets when he's 38 and he's, the oldest person there by half his age and most people that sign up for that are like 18 19 and doing that uh meant that he wouldn't rise any further in the military hierarchy it, it really builds up the it really builds up the the brando character really mm -hmm. well so you kind of, you already know who he is when you get there we don't have to learn who he is now that we finally meet him. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever read the book of Heart of Darkness, the Joseph Conrad book that this is loosely based on? I, I recently listened to an audio book of it um, and I couldn't really get into it. <laughs> what, so are there parts of the book that happen in this movie or is it just the kind of the basic premise of going up the river in a boat and seeing some guy named Kurtz? It's the basic Maybe. premise and then oddly, um, specific details like the boat being lost in the fog and they don't know where the, uh, they are and getting attacked with arrows and the uh, Dennis Hopper character in Heart of Darkness is a uh, Russian uh, just explorer or traveler who's there and he has a lot of the same dialogue that Dennis Hopper has asking for cigarettes and saying like, you know, well, I'm out of here, then uh, <laughs> the design of the camp with the severed heads. Uh, so I think in the Hearts of Darkness, they're on pikes. Yeah. Uh, that's all from, that's all from the book. And yeah. the Kurtz character, yeah, just like talks for a bit and then, and then dies. And then uh, the narrator character called Marlowe, he takes yeah. the, he takes Kurtz's manuscript and then just leaves and goes back up the river. Uh, one thing thematically that's similar 
or that I think Apocalypse Now really took for, from Heart of Darkness is that main character in Heart of Darkness, Marlo, uh, has a flash where he thinks that, well, maybe Kurtz has died and I won't get to meet him. And he's really disappointed because he wouldn't get to talk with Kurtz, not like see him or be in his presence, but, uh, but to talk to him and hear his thoughts. And that's what was really important to the Marlowe character. And that's what Willard does. He doesn't really do anything with Kurtz other than just talk to him and listen to him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, a lot of people complain about this movie being too weird and not believable as being a movie. Like that Platoon is a more believable movie or Full Metal Jacket. And this one is too strange and arty. But my father-in-law, he says that he, he served in the Vietnam War. And he says that this is the closest to how it actually felt. <laughs> Was Apocalypse Now. Like it's his favorite of those movies. Like I don't know if favorite's the word, but the one that he said was like the best at actually showing, like he did a lot of surfing in the Vietnam War. And he knew other people that did. And like that wasn't just a made up thing for this movie. Like that actually happened. And he's, everybody was on drugs and everybody didn't know what was going on. And it was just sort of like lawless in a way. And it's very different than like when you watch movies about World War II and things seem to be a little more regimented and a little more orderly. Um, and so he says that this movie like perfectly captured what it was like. And uh, which is funny because I never thought, like, I've never been to any war. And so it's funny to hear from an actual veteran that this was the one running watches where he's like, yep, that was right. That's what it is. <laughs> Apocalypse Now. That's, I've, I've heard that also. From I don't know if it was my dad talking about people he knew that were that was in the war, but yeah, they said the apocalypse now was like not about like not accurate as to what like the day to day life was like what it was like fighting in the jungles or even in the like blown out cities, but it's accurate as to what it was like to experience the experience of being there psychologically and yeah one day you're surfing now you're under fire now you're lost in the jungle now you're at a uso show with uh, playboy bunnies yeah it's uh the movie like every scene like every 20 minutes it almost feels like a different movie in a way like it just like the way the interactions with the people and the tone of it shifts like it works there's never a point where it doesn't but it was really interesting how they approached it. And maybe that's due to when they made it, they started going off script and just going with what they felt in Coppola, not even knowing how to end it. And they just kept shooting for years, making this movie. Cause like, like the stuff at the beginning, uh, you know, feels like the beginning of, of like a weird you know, art movie, like we said, but then when he's getting the orders by Harrison Ford and, and, uh, and Sprodlin, that feels like, okay, this feels like the beginning of a normal, you know, war movie or like someone going on a mission. And then the part with Kilgore feels very epic and big. Like this is like a Torah, 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 like David Lean, almost like just big war movie. And then every, you know, chapter of the movie, it gets more strange and more away from, and like you said, more like a horror movie. Um, and, a lot, and it totally works. Like I can't think of another movie like this where the tone keeps changing and the movie it's a movie's kind of slowly turning into a different movie but it's not distracting and it doesn't ruin it 
You get a million movies in one. <laughs> yeah, this movie is a collection of set pieces tied together by the boat journeying upriver. And we could, yeah. you could really get a sense of that in watching the work print where there's not these in-between scenes of the boat just going upriver and Martin Sheen reading the dossier. It just goes from like one set piece to the next set piece really jarringly. Yeah. Um, well, let's... Yeah. You want to let's talk about the work print. Let's let's go into that. So we were lucky enough to get the 289 minute sought after work print. Uh, it's poor quality. It looks like shit. It sounds terrible. Um, it's got time code on it, but it's so good. <laughs> like I'm so glad we watched it. And like if you if you can find it, if anyone can track it, it's totally worth it. Especially if you love this movie, because it's so much more to love. There's so much more, like more than what was in any of the other versions that came out after. Um, right off the bat, it's weird because there's no there is no narration because it's was done I guess before they thought to do that or didn't put it down. So there is no narration at all. So there's this weird kind of different feel to the whole movie. And so because there's no narration, it, it like we said, there's less of kind of, you know, about Willard or Kurtz, but man, it's good. Did you like it? Did you, I loved watching it. <laughs> I did. I, I really liked watching it. There were, yeah, moments where it was, um, I mean, the quality visually and audio, audio wise was just so poor that I like couldn't understand what was going on because I couldn't hear them. It's a trans, it's a, DVD transferred from a VHS. Transferred from a who knows other tape. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, especially the scenes with Robert Duvall, like you can't hear what anyone's saying because the helicopters are so loud. And it's like, this is pre-mixed. So it's kind of hard to pick up the dialogue. Um, yeah, I did there were, like where it came from, like where it went and how, like some movies are just so, so good. I can't imagine them in a, in any other form in not even in like a raw rough draft form. Like to me, back to the future just existed like that. There was no version where doc Brown had a pet monkey instead of a pet dog. And the time machine was a refrigerator and not a car. Like, were you kidding? I, is that, I is that a real thing? <laughs> yeah. That was the original version. Uh, <laughs> They didn't film that though. That's just in the script. No, right? that was the original script, the first script that they wrote that Zemeckis and Gale wrote and took around to studios. Uh, and he was Professor Brown, not Doc Brown. And I oh, I own that original copy of the script. I bought it from some you know guy on the street in New York. Um, and it's like, but this is a joke. Like no one, like this isn't. <laughs> How did Back to the Future come from this? Anyway, yeah, so it's it's great seeing where all this came from and how, I mean, you just see, like, full scenes, like, the, the full Martin Sheen freak out, all the takes they did. It's just, like, 10 minutes of him having an actual crisis because Martin Sheen was going through a lot of stuff emotionally uh, at that point in his life. And then he's, you know, as as you might imagine from you know, eight years on the West Wing or whatever. He's a very liberal pacifist. And so being in this war movie was already a kind of, uh, you know, he was struggling with that. And then seeing like all the poverty in 
the Philippines where they shot this movie was just weighing on him and he got like really drunk actually drunk during that scene and had a legitimate freak out and you can hear some of what he's saying he's just shouting at like you know god or something i don't know <laughs> it's and it's and it, the part is so long they actually play the end the door song in its entirety i believe like i think you hear the whole thing yeah um and what's great about this movie is it's like i think more so than the redux and the final cut this really does feel like a whole different movie in a way like it feels like a different take like the other ones to me feel kind of like a longer shorter version of what we already know but like you have the beginning you have way more like you have more normal moments that they took out like when he goes to the base in saigon you have lots of, you actually see like saigon you actually see the streets of saigon and people and that kind of makes it feel a little more normal in that part and more of the army base and him going through this army base and so you're, it feels that feels more like shots you'd see in a regular movie not apocalypse now and then especially the part where he's meeting the crew of the boat and it's like every character superimposed, like almost looks like the beginning of a TV show, like The Love Boat, where it's like, and here's Chef, and here's Mr. Yeah, Clean. and they each speak directly to the camera. <laughs> to the camera, and you see like superimposed over like the boat launching. And that that part was, that was the first part where I'm like, oh, this is different. Like the beginning was like, oh, this is the longer version of, of, of Willard in his room. But then this part happened, I'm like, that's a weird scene. What like what would it have been like if that was in Apocalypse Now? It wouldn't be. I don't think it would have ever made it. Like that's not a scene you'd see in a movie like Apocalypse Now. It was that was very strange. You get I uh, you get <laughs> a lot more helicopters flying. If you don't like seeing helicopters fly around, never watch the work print of Apocalypse. It reminded me of the end of True Romance where they're in the producer's like hotel room. And he's watching just like helicopter footage, like from the, whatever the fake movie's called, like Bring Home the Body the body Bag or Home in a Body Bag or whatever. So just like you get like so much helicopters flying, like like lots of it. Uh, you get a part, you get helicopters flying to some Tomita, the music of Tomita, who was this Japanese, uh, 70s Japanese uh, uh, electronic artist where he would do electronic music versions, like synthesized versions of like Holst the Planets and uh, classical stuff. And Coppola actually wanted him to do the soundtrack to Apocalypse Now, but something happened where like he couldn't do it because he was on another label or some stupid legality. So he had his dad, uh, Coppola had his dad, Carmine, is that? Yeah. Write music and then Coppola hired people to synthesize that music to make it sound like Tamita. And it really does. And in the work print, you get to hear Tomita. And it's really exciting to hear this Tomita music while you're seeing these helicopters fly. Um, and you get way more Kilgore. Like that whole part is like, it feels like an hour. I don't think it is, but it's like a big chunk of this movie is just them hanging out with Robert Duvall. Yeah, he plays a song. Robert Duvall wrote a song that he sings when his soldiers are all just hanging out at night after the their first encounter the with the first village that they uh destroy and it's a song that robert duvall wrote himself and he just plays it and you hear the song in full i think you hear maybe like four seconds of the end of the song in all the official versions of the movie um but yeah so that was something 
Um, you get a lot more. So if anyone that's interested in making movies or how movies are made, I would definitely recommend watching the work print of Apocalypse Now or the work print of Blade Runner, which I haven't uh, delved into yet. That's going to be another chapter of my life. But uh, just seeing all the scenes of like when uh, the uh, radio, uh, Saigon Good Morning Vietnam radio plays Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones and Lawrence Fishburne's really excited and he dances around to it and you just see him fully dance like to satisfaction for the entire length of the song like kicking out his long skinny arms and legs and it's it's fun and you realize like okay yeah but you only need like five seconds of that you know to get the idea and then in this movie, isn't it not even the Rolling Stones version? Isn't it the Otis Redding version? In the you're work right. Print? You're right. It is. In, yeah, the work so in the work print, it's him excited to hear the Otis Redding version of Satisfaction. So I don't know why they changed their mind or they didn't know they can get the rights to the original. So they were like, oh, we'll use Otis Redding. And then I personally think it would have been cooler if they used the Otis Redding version. But uh, but yeah, you're right. It's like you could take if I wish it was in better quality because it'd be interesting experiment for film students to be like, here's six hours of apocalypse now now you edit your version <laughs> like you take these scenes and how much do you think is too much um <laughs> i see i i was i there's parts in the work print that i think are better than any of the versions that i wish there were put in the redux of the final cut like i feel like there was that shot where there's like an abandoned boat with monkeys on it going down the river and there's like this splayed uh dissected human corpse hanging from the sails that part was great. That that feels like a horror movie. That part is upsetting. Uh, that was awesome. That part kind of felt like there's a lot of this movie that feels very Herzogian. It feels very much like Werner Herzog. It almost feels like Aguirre. You think, like it feels like Aguirre and a little bit of Hearts of Glass. Like, do you think Coppola was a fan of that? Like even the soundtrack kind of feels like that Pulpova stuff, like with the choral arrangements and the synth. Like it feels like he's doing. The, the apocalypse now is is couple of doing Herzog kind of. I, I mean, I get it. I see it, and I like it. Um, from what I've read, and you know, all the special features, I, I don't know for sure that Coppola was into Herzog. Uh, you know, officially. I mean, I imagine, you know, Cineas that he is. He probably saw at least a couple of Herzog movies by this point. <laughs> Because Aguirre is other people going in the jungle on this weird journey. And especially that part with the boat with all the monkeys on it, the end of Aguirre has the boat with Klaus Kinski dealing with all these little monkeys. Yeah, and Klaus Kinski goes insane and he's like, I'm the wrath of God and here yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start civilization new with these monkeys or whatever. And then like just the whole idea of going, like just taking a movie and a crew and just going into the jungle and making some crazy, lawless, insane thing, like feels very Herzogian. It is because you have Werner Herzog taking his, uh, you know, foreign, foreign to the uh, location crew, Germans, into the jungles of South America. And like, it's a movie about a white man that's gonna lift a boat, move a boat over a mountain. <laughs> okay, and then Werner Herzog becomes the white man obsessed with moving this boat over the mountain, even though it's impossible. And then he has someone filming him 
do that, lose his mind and become yeah. the character in his movie. And yeah. with Apocalypse Now, you have Francis Ford Coppola taking a bunch of yeah. non-locals, non-natives, Americans into the Philippine jungles to like, we're going to journey up river and, you know, lose our minds. <laughs> and someone is filming him do that and filming him like become, <laughs> become <laughs> Willard and become Kurtz and even Kilgore. Uh, yeah. When in the uh, Redux and Final Cuts, when uh, Lance, when Martin Sheen takes Lance and they escape Kilgore and he's pissed off, he throws his megaphone up in the air and it lands and breaks. And that's something that Coppola would do when he got really pissed off and something wasn't working. He would take his radio that he used to communicate with the crew and throw it up in the air. And it would yeah. break and they cost like $1,500. So there was a crew member just in charge of like, he's getting pissed <laughs> off. Quick, take the radio from him. And Robert Duvall <laughs> improvised that moment. He just threw it up in the air because he saw, you know, Coppola do that enough. And there looks in the commentaries, Coppola says that there is a look that Albert Hall gives Martin Sheen, like, I hate you and don't trust you, that he saw Albert Hall give him at several points throughout the movie. <laughs> Back to the Herzog thing, of course, you were talking about Fitzcarraldo earlier about the, uh, them going into South America. And that, that movie was made in 79. It was released in 82. And so it's interesting, like when Apocalypse Now comes out, Herzog then is like, well, I'm going to make a movie that's like Apocalypse Now. Like he made a movie like Aguirre, so I'm going to make a movie like Apocalypse Now. I'm going to take this boat through the jungle. And then both Apocalypse Now and Fitzcarraldo have these documentaries that are as famous as the movie in a way. I think with a Fitzcarraldo, Burden of Dreams is actually more famous about these crazy productions of everyone going insane in the jungle. So I guess the lesson is, is don't make a movie in the jungle. You'll all go crazy. <laughs> but, but back to the work print. Um, the best part of, this, of the work print to me was the when they go to the Kurtz compound, it really is like a whole other movie. It's like 90 minutes of the Marlon Brando stuff. And it's so good. Like, I, I think I must have been really hard for Coppola to cut any of it out. Like, they, it really does feel like its own movie. And you get so much good stuff uh, from those scenes that we, you've never seen before in the work print. You get, especially with Scott Glenn, whom I didn't even know was in Apocalypse Now until I watched the work print. Like he is this, he's the guy in Apocalypse Now who's hired. He's kind of basically Martin Sheen before Martin Sheen. Like he was he's a, a the guy. Renfield. He's the Renfield. He was the guy ca called in earlier to kind of stop and deal with Marlon Brando's character. And then he just kind of instead got inducted into the doctrine, uh, indoctrinated and, and got uh, like part of his whole jungle crew. And like in the original movie, Scott Glenn's there standing there. And I don't think he says anything. I he think has no lines of dialogue. Where, yeah, and, and Willard goes up to him and goes, hey, it's you. But in the work print, you get a lot of Scott Glenn. Like he is almost, he is like a main character in the movie that was completely <laughs> cut out. And you get so much of him. And you, and it's, and you get so much more of, of Marlon Brando. And Marlon Brand, there's a lot of Marlon Brando, more of his philosophizing and you get this great part where um, Dennis Hopper, you actually get to see Dennis Hopper die, which I didn't know he was killed originally. Cause in the movie, he just kind of leaves like in the original movie, he's just sort of like, 
I'm out of here. I can't hang with this. Goodbye. And he just kind of vanishes. And that's the end of that character. But in this, he has a breakdown. And then Scott Glenn kills him. And then Martin Sheen kills Scott Glenn. And Scott Glenn's last words are, kill Kurt. It's like, kill him. Like, you need to kill him. And it's a great scene. And I wish it was in the original movie or any of the other versions, because I think it's really interesting. It's really good. It, it's, uh, it changes Willard's uh, motivations to actually go through with the act of killing Kurtz at the end, because now he, like, he's seen like, all the madness and he's been imprisoned in like, a, you know, a bamboo uh, prison. And now he's in like, a, a pit with a bamboo uh, top over it and you know he saw the guy that loves Kurtz uh Dennis Hopper he's dead and he wanted Willard to to leave to tell people about the genius of Kurtz and now Scott Glenn kind of like now seeing another regular army guys almost come back to his senses and he urges Willard to like kill Kurtz and so then and then he does if you take that out, what we have in the other, in the official versions of the movie is Willard deciding to kill Kurtz because Kurtz has decided, like, I need you to kill me. Yeah. Um, so it's just two different, uh, two different versions, two different motivations. To me, each work, the one like Scott Glenn urging him on feels like a more traditional uh, movie motivation mm -hmm. like the guy that's like bought into it and now sees the errors of everything and oh, he's man. tries to urge Martin Sheen to to uh, you know to end it all yeah, before yeah. he gets consumed by the madness and my favorite scene in the work print was a long shot where Willard is tied up and they're parading the natives are parading him through when they have like a fish on a stick and they're like poking him with sticks and taunting him. And you can hear the screams of pigs being slaughtered or whatever. And it's a long shot. It's like, it feels like it goes on forever. It's so good. It's really terrifying. It, it actually adds more to the uh, horror movie uh, moment uh, of, the, this, of this, this movie becomes. It really that does. You see that Lance, it goes, like he's a spacey guy to begin with. And then he goes like fully spaced out. Mm -hmm. But... Um, in a much more like, I don't know, benevolent kind of way. Uh, yeah. In the work print, you see like, no, he goes like insane, like Kurtz, like on the boat, he's killing just whatever he sees. Like he sees an animal in the river and he shoots it. And uh, the chef gets after him, or maybe it's the chief says like, it has life, man. Like you can't just kill something that has life in it. And then there at the, in the compound, he's like taunting Willard as he's, you know, imprisoned in the bamboo thing. Um, I also thought it was interesting at the end, instead of playing the doors, the end again, they play when the music's over, which is a much more jauntier song. And so it totally changes the tone of when Willard's sneaking around and, and goes to kill Marlon Brando's character. Cause it's like a much more jollier sounding <laughs> Uh, as jolly as the doors can sound uh, like it's not as brooding as the end and I, I wonder if that was originally the choice I mean the work print in general has a lot of doors songs like and not just the end but there's tons of doors throughout the whole five hours but that part was really startling like oh 
this is I've only known the scene to the end and now it's a totally different door song and the imagery is more upsetting you see Willard kill a kid there's a part where a guy holds a kid up to shield himself and Martin Sheen just stabs the kid like stabs like, them like, both yeah stabs the them both, but to when the music's over um what did you think of that I like rewound it and watched it like three times just to make sure what I was seeing. And I was like, well, I'm not on board with this. <laughs> I'm not on board with any of this, man. And I wondered if that was part of like one of the many original endings of the movie where Willard either joined Kurtz and became part of his camp or he took over the camp. Like he killed Kurtz and then he became, you know, king of this renegade mad army. Um, yeah. Because Willard, for all his, uh, you know, this like, he's just experienced too much to put too much emotion into anything. Like he is just a guy who's here to do a mission, you know. He's here to go up, uh, find out about Kurtz and then terminate the colonel's command. And then go home. And he doesn't maybe even want to go home. He tells the chief at one point, uh, like, just get me close enough to the compound and then you and the Navy crew can go and I'll just be there. Um, yeah. And so that act of killing a child, that's like Willard accepting the horror the way that Kurtz accepted the horror. Kurtz tells a story which is one of those stories that like John Millius heard from someone that he knew that was in Vietnam that may or may not be true of how the US Army or Special Forces, whoever, inoculated a bunch of uh, village children for polio to you know, try and win over these tribes. And then the Viet Cong came in and they hacked off all the arms of the children that had been inoculated. And Kurtz like sees that and it breaks him and he weeps. He says, I weeped like a grandmother. <laughs> and then he realized, my God, the genius of that, that there were men who had morals, who had families, who had children, then they did this, like they unleashed that part of you know, the human that can kill and do horrible things. And they did it without judgment, without morality. And he realizes that that's how you have to fight this war. And so he allows himself, like that's the horror and he accepts that. And then he starts fighting the war like that on his own terms. And then yeah, the original versions of the script in the very first original ending that John Milius wrote, the compound is being attacked by North Vietnamese and then the American airstrike comes in to fight off the North Vietnamese. And then Kurtz starts firing on the Americans and then Willard joins him and kills Americans and Vietnamese and everyone. And then there's another version where he kills Kurtz, but then he takes over. And Coppola wanted an optimistic ending and he feels like he gave Apocalypse Now an optimistic ending because he kills Kurtz and then he leaves. Like he kills Kurtz and then the whole Montagnard army is, sees him and he drops his machete 
And so then all the other people, they drop their weapons and swords and spears and things. And it's like, you know, the old king is dead. Here's the new king. We follow the new king and the new king threw down his, his weapon. So we throw down our weapons and then he leaves. Like he's not going to carry on any of this. He got them to all throw down their weapons. He gets on the boat and the boat on the radio, the uh, whatever the artillery is calling in to confirm the airstrike. And he turns off the radio. He decides not to bomb the compound. And in that way, he does end the horror. Yeah. He gives this army, this rebel army, no leader. So they just have to go back to their lives. And he doesn't destroy them with fire from the sky. He just leaves and goes back to where he came from unceremoniously. And what's interesting with the uh, work print is it just ends when he kills Kurt and you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know what the end is going to be. The work print literally stops. Like he just goes, he kills Marlon Brando and then the movie's done. <laughs> and that's it. Uh, you don't get to know whether he stays or leaves or calls it in or what. And that's, it's very shocking. That ending was very shocking. I was like, oh, I guess they didn't know what to do after that. Uh, and what's interesting is when I first saw this movie with my parents on, on tape, they were upset because they remembered an ending where this airstrike is called in and they do blow up the thing. And I, and I was like, I don't think that's true. But then I found out in my research of going through all these things that it really wasn't a way true where they had uh, end credits over over because they did blow it up because it was originally written as and they, they they did and they did film it blowing up and Coppola decided not to use it, but they wanted they put that over the end credits just it blowing up just because he wanted explosions, but then once he heard that people when they were watching it were like oh I guess Willard called in the airstrike he was upset being like oh I don't want people to think that he bombed it I just thought it was a cool image to put in the end credits so I got to take that out so then he took it out so it was there originally in some of the theatrical versions. And then he took it out. But yeah, my parents the, saw one of those versions that had the uh, the Kurtz compound exploding. In the commentary Coppola does, he talks about one of the reasons he took out that footage. Like, yeah, he put it in the theatrical in the 35 millimeter general theatrical release, so something could play over the credits. And there was all this footage of the compound blowing up you might as well use it it's you know good footage but then he realized people were taking it to be that Willard called in the airstrike and he realized when he was filming this ceremony of the water buffalo he keeps calling it a caribou and maybe there's more than one kind of caribou because <laughs> uh, I'm like that's not caribou I know but anyway and they they kill it and it's a real animal being really killed if that's, you know, a sensitive area, but it's being killed by these native Philippine tribes in a their ritualistic way. Like it was a ceremony they were gonna have and he just filmed it. And it was like, it was a happy occasion for this tribe. And there were children there and they're running around playing. And he realizes like, well, wait, I've established that this compound is filled with like families and children. And I just showed this ceremony where they're all like having this happy time and then if I show the airstrike, it's going to be like, well, they all got blown up. And that's totally the opposite of what he wanted. He wanted to be like, they 
they you know they did not meet a fiery disastrous end they met a you know a, a peaceful end they met this neutrality that could only lead to peace so he uh yeah pulled that version from movies which then yeah led to a lot of confusion because it'd be like well no i saw it. it blows up at the end i saw it on film and it's not a uh what do you call it? a mandela effect kind of thing where people remember something that totally isn't true yeah and they yeah. won't give up on it like no you if you remember that ending to the movie you might have seen it you might have actually seen it <laughs> have you ever so uh, people should definitely seek out this work print i found it on a uh there's a lot of websites. There's there's still existing in the world, bootleg sites that sell work prints and out of print stuff, and definitely seek it out. Um, uh, there's 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 actually many work prints of other movies floating around the world. Like there's the notorious uh, uh, Alien work print, which has a lot more weird stuff in it. I've never seen it. Uh, there's this this is Spinal Tap, has like a five hour work print that you can find somewhere, which I would love to see that. Um, I, uh, the movie I'll Do Anything, the James L. Brooks, there's the work print of it being when it was a musical, because it was originally a musical and they took the songs out. That's a, that's a good, I actually have that one. I'm very proud of that one. I wonder if the, if the Annie Hall work print exists, the one where they filmed like, there was like a whole different movie, right? For Annie there Hall? Was, yeah, there was like um, a murder mystery plot, like Manhattan murder mystery is from the deleted scenes, like, I mean, redone and reshot uh, of Annie Hall. There was a murder mystery plot line into it. There was all these different fantasy sequences where um, Alvy, the Woody Allen character, was like playing with the Harlem Globetrotters. And it, <laughs> it, it was a lot more like Woody Allen's like early funny movies. His like zany over the top kind of like a, uh, uh, like Zucker Brothers-esque kind of comedies. And then while they were filming, yeah, it became Andy Hall, you know, uh, like a much more grounded in reality kind yeah. of movie. And, and sadly, Woody Allen is never one for extra features ever for anything. <laughs> so I don't think we'll ever see that footage in like a special no. DVD. But man, if anyone listening to this knows where we can find the work print of that, I would love to see that. Uh, but but um, I don't know. Is there anything else about the work print to talk about? Can we move on? Here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Mad Dog Time, the Paperboy, Mordecai, after last season. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films. The world is wrong about. Available on Paperhouse Network wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Going back to the movie, it's funny watching this with the other Coppola stuff. Where once you get to the stuff with Kurtz, it's another scene with Marlon Brando that's really dark. <laughs> Just like the yeah. beginning of The Godfather, it's like we love to film this man in like the darkest room. Like this is like even darker than anything The Godfather did. You're just seeing like slivers of his face. So I thought that was funny that <laughs> he's allowed to film yeah. that dude in the dark. <laughs> uh, supposedly it was to hide how overweight he was in this movie because Kurtz in the book originally was very gaunt, you know, skinny, tall guy. And then Marlon Brando showed up way overweight. So they're like, well, we'll just yeah. shoot him. 
dark. In the um, in the Milius script, John Milius wrote the script. He uh, Kurtz was like a super soldier. He was a guy who, at 38 years old, just went through the Green Beret training course that wipes out most uh, 18, 19 year olds. And that's one of the narration lines they added in was Willard saying, like, uh, you know, shit, like that, uh, like I was 19 and that course nearly wiped me out. And he just went through it. But then Marlon Brando, you know, tells Coppola like, oh, don't worry, I'll, I'll lose the weight. And he comes to the Philippines and he's even fatter than when <laughs> Coppola had last talked to him. <laughs> and so then Coppola, decides to try and rewrite the script well now he's he's like a like a uh, like a hedonistic king and so he's gonna always be eating like mangoes and just having like stuff brought to him because he's a king now and brando didn't want to be shot like that so it's like okay fine then just sit over there and we will put you in shadow (laughs) (laughs) and this is sort of like the era of when Marlon Brando really, I mean, I wouldn't say this is when he started being difficult because I think he's always been kind of a difficult guy to work with. But he definitely, like, this is when, like, this is around the time of Superman where it's a lot of, like, you pay me a million dollars, like, for one day and I'll be in your movie. And then people did. And, and you know, I have to be top build and I have to be, or whatever. Like, even if I'm in a movie for five minutes, like, I'm the star. And uh, it's and crazy. It just, like, like Superman, this movie stars Marlon Brando Robert Duvall and Martin Sheen, and Superman yeah. stars Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, and Christopher Reeve. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That third build guy is the fucking main character and star of the movie. This guy that's in it for only ten minutes is billed first, and then the actual like big movie star is yeah. is billed over the main character. But I mean, Marlon Brando is really good. Like he is, you know, considered one of the great actors, if not the greatest of actors. And and in this movie, just like in The Godfather, no, just it's no exception. Like he is great. Like he is an amazing actor. And yeah, like yeah. all the stuff he did, like with like the scenes where he's like rubbing his head, and he really knows where the light is. Like he really, even though he's in shadows, he's very an actor. You can tell is very aware of what he's what is what is being shot. So he'll you kind of take his head down and get like light bounced off of it, and the way he moves in and out of the shadow, very deliberate and very like just very aware of his body on screen. A lot of the dialogue he has is just him improvising because he didn't learn his lines. He wouldn't read *Heart of Darkness*, uh, but he is still he's still bringing it. You know, he's still delivering. He's not like a lazy actor. He's not a lazy person who doesn't want to do his job or doesn't want to do anything he maybe like Coppola making this movie like knows where he wants to go but just doesn't know how to get there so once he's there he just kind of figures it out and you know (laughs) makes stuff up until something finally works and there's a a really amazing extra I don't know if this is on the blu-ray you have but on the redux dvd that came out there's a movie a short credited to being directed by Coppola where it's the whole scene of Brando reading the Hollow Men, the the T.S. Eliot poem. Oh, that's there. I haven't watched it. Oh, it's so good. It, and like anybody should watch it. It's really great. It's just him reading this whole part of this. I don't know if it's the whole. I don't know if it's the whole poem or if it's just a big. I think it's the whole poem. I'm unfamiliar. But it's like 15 minutes of him just reading this T.S. Eliot poem, 
And then it's a lot of the footage, and I'm assuming that uh, Eleanor Coppola shot, it's a lot of just behind the scenes footage of all the Kurt scenes and, and that jungle while you hear Marlon Brando like brilliantly read this poem. And you get a snippet of it in the movie. Uh, there's a part where he's reading that poem and then Dennis Hopper starts, you know, babbling to <laughs> Martin Sheen and Dennis Hopper like throws, uh, you know, a pot at him or whatever. And in every movie at the three hour mark should bring Dennis Hopper in. Like every movie, once you've passed 120 minutes and you're in your last hour, like you got to bring Dennis Hopper in and that like, it's like a shot of adrenaline. <laughs> it's a like, really it's a like, bolt of light he's the most energetic thing in this movie yeah dennis hopper's first scene like they approach with the boat and the boat's all beaten up and and the the roof is now made of uh bamboo leaves and chef is where chef frederick forrest is wearing a, like a bamboo leaf as a hat now and they're all really beat up and the native army is there and Dennis Hopper says, like, zap him with the siren, zap him with the siren. And so he turns on the siren and they all run away. And then he, like, hops on the boat with his arms spread out and says, I'm an American. Yeah. American civilian. Hi, Yanks. Hi. American. American civilian. It's all right. And you got the cigarettes. And that's what I've been dreaming of. Chef. Who are you? Mm. Who are you? <laughs> this frustration with with the Willard shows like oh god like I just want an answer I just want something to be normal uh I will I, w I will fully admit that and it hasn't happened in a long time but in college it would happen semi-regularly where I would drink so much that I'd reached this point where I just became Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse <laughs> Now. And I just started talking like in my highest register and every other word would be man. And it wasn't anything I planned. It wasn't anything I planned. I'd only seen Apocalypse Now like maybe once or twice up to that point. Like we'd be out. They've had I don't know how many margaritas or white Russians, <laughs> and then like, what man? I'm not going out to Brooklyn at this hour, man. The L train doesn't run past eleven o'clock. I don't care what the people in Williamsburg tell you. Where's that leave me, man? Am I gonna have to take the G train? That where am I gonna go on the G train, man? I'm not going out to Brooklyn. It was a, it was a regular occurrence, and uh, yeah. I remember more of it than I say I do. Uh, you probably remember more than Dennis Hopper does of making this movie. <laughs> and this is in the weird point of his life where like Dennis Hopper, and we've talked about this before with earlier episodes, like he was very much a part of the new Hollywood, like Easy Rider along with Bonnie and Clyde, like was like these movies in the late 60s that kind of opened the door to what we know as the 70s movies of like this sort of like the director doing whatever they're allowed to do, very personal, like outside the studio system. And Dennis Hopper was certainly at the forefront of that. And then he made his weird go to the jungle and go crazy movie. Um, what was that movie called? The Last Movie. And he went to the jungle and made a movie and went nuts and was not allowed to make a movie again. <laughs> and then he was in a bunch of like, I feel like from Italy, like a bunch of just movies that not from America because people like, we're not working with that guy. And then Coppola brought him into Hot Clubs Now and, and like 
you can tell when you watch the making of that, like it was hard to kind of work with him as much as Brando because he's just out of his mind on drugs and alcohol and totally like, like just it's out there in a different place. In the documentary Hearts of Darkness, it, those scenes, they're funny and not funny to watch because if you've, I don't know, just lived life, man, that you've probably encountered someone who's too messed up on something and it's funny if you're watching it, if you're there in a situation, you're like, oh, I'm dealing with this person who's my friend or not. And they're just so messed up and I'm totally sober and just trying to keep things straight. And so like there's scenes of Dennis Hopper and you can tell he's, he's messed up. It's like, oh yeah, like, well, I, I, I forgot my lines. It <laughs> was like, well, you, you know what they say. You, have, you, you can forget your lines after you learn your lines, once you learn your lines, then you can forget them. And Hopper is just there like, oh yeah, yeah. Like telling you what you want to hear, but you know that he's messed up and he's not going to remember this even 10 minutes from now. Yeah. And it's really, it's funny to watch, but it's sad if you've ever been in that kind of situation. Yeah. You're like, yeah, like I'm like, I need something from you and you're not going to give it to me. And this is pretty close to when I think he hit rock bottom in his life and woke up naked in the road. I think the story goes where he just woke up naked somewhere and was like, where the fuck am I? And, and he got sober, cleaned up, and that's how we get a Hoosiers and a Blue Velvet because he was able to clean up, shave, start wearing, uh, you know, button shirts. Uh, <laughs> hang out yeah, with you can bounce back. And, uh, <laughs> if Dennis back. Hopper can bounce back, you can bounce back. Yeah, yeah. we wouldn't have had a King Koopa if he didn't clean up, you know, like, this is the good things in life. Uh, So let, you mentioned, let's talk about, so Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, is another movie to watch if you're into apocalypse now, because it's a feature-length movie about the making of this movie, uh, compiled of footage that Eleanor Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola's wife, shot on 16mm sound while he was making the movie, and then, uh, George Hickenlooper and Fax Bear, I think as you say it, helped make this docu, put this documentary together. And it's great. Like it's maybe, maybe the most famous documentary about a movie, probably. Yeah, I would say so. Like this, like maybe tied with Burden of Dreams about the making of this. Yeah, yeah. And it's so good. It's such a great movie. And, uh, and it's like, it's interesting because you get all these little tidbits about Apocalypse Now you didn't know about. Like you hear about Orson Welles is going to make it, instead of Citizen Kane, his first movie was going to be based on Heart of Darkness, and it didn't happen. But he, like, worked hard on it and made, like, models and, like, storyboards. And yeah, there's that. footage of, like, him in makeup as Kurtz. Um, he was going to make Kurtz. They did makeup tests, but it didn't make it. And so John Milius, who uh, gets left out of the, like, New Hollywood stuff, like, a lot of times, because he's not so conservative as he is libertarian and counter counterculture. <laughs> he's the character that John Goodman's based. Uh, he's who's John Goodman's character is based on in Big Lebowski. Yes. When John Millis's kids saw the Big Lebowski, they're like, Oh my God, that's dad. Like, does he know they did this? <laughs> he dressed John Millis dresses like uh, Walter Sobchak in The Big Lebowski, he says the same things, he acts the same way, he carries a loaded forty-five at all times. When Martin Sheen, when they were doing the docu, I'm sorry, when they were doing the narration 
and Milius came back to kind of help with it, even though he didn't write the, the narration. Martin Sheen just kind of couldn't get, you know, get into it. And John Milius gave, he just reaches into his pocket and pulls out his loaded 45 and said, like, this is an M1911 45. Like, hold it, it's loaded, hold it in your hand. And Martin Sheen, who's a total, like, liberal pacifist, and Charlie Sheen may have been there. I don't know, because it's Charlie Sheen that tells this story in, I believe, the John Milius documentary called Milius. It's on Amazon Prime. Highly recommend it. And Martin Sheen, it didn't, I don't know that it helped Martin Sheen get into character so much as he was so distracted by holding this tool of death that then he didn't think too much about the words he was saying and he got into character. But, you know, he, as a young guy, hearing like, oh, Orson Welles tried to make this movie and he couldn't make it. Then John Milius says, well, I'm going to make that movie. <laughs> so he writes his uh, version of Hearts of Darkness, calls it Apocalypse Now, which here's where Apocalypse Now comes from. They were in the late 60s, of course, hippie counterculture and protesting the Vietnam War. And, um, you know, Eastern ideas were starting to come into the Western culture like Nirvana and there'd be people holding signs and wearing buttons with peace the peace sign that said Nirvana now and John Milius like to dig at them you know it wasn't really like he bought into the Nixon like pro-Vietnam line he just like wanted to get at these people that were counter to that he would say like no no not Nirvana now apocalypse now let's just end it all now and start over and so he made <laughs> buttons that was he would turn the peace sign on its side and then add little like uh propellers and things to make it look like a b-52 bomber and then he wrote apocalypse now on the top and then he made a button that was just a mushroom cloud that said apocalypse now and he would wear those <laughs> and show up to these protests you know, with people carrying signs that said Nirvana now, and he would show up with his buttons of nuclear destruction and said Apocalypse Now. So he's like the original punk rocker, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to not say that. Yeah. And he, of course, he was in the same film class as George Lucas. When George Lucas was making THX 1138, the, uh, the student film, it's a film. So this story George Lucas tells in the Millie's documentary, other people have denied it, but George Lucas maintains it. He stands by it. He says, because I was there, that the film instructor, after watching Lucas's short film, says, George, you can't, we can't show this. Like, but why? He's like, because it's so much better than anything anyone else in the class is doing. It's just going to make them feel bad. So we're not going to show it. And then John Millius walks up and punches the professor in the face. <laughs> Other, like a lot of people say it's not true. George Lucas says, I was there, I saw him do that. And so even though, one of those nice stories, like, hey, even though George Lucas and John Milius and Steven Spielberg, also friends with Milius, have radically different political ideals, they all got along. Um, yeah, so Milius was going to write this movie about the Vietnam War based on Hearts of Darkness. George Lucas was going to direct it. 
And it was one of the first American zoetrope movies that was gonna be filmed in like late 1968. And they were gonna film it in Vietnam. This is how hardcore these guys were, man. <laughs> John Milius wanted it like shot documentary style in Vietnam. And George Lucas says, well, that's great, John. I'm the one that's gonna have to film it. <laughs> and then the Tet Offensive happened, which if you don't know what that is, uh, watch Full Metal Jacket when shit starts getting real and Americans start getting killed in droves. That's the Tet Offensive. Um, so that didn't happen, but that property was owned by, by Coppola now. Because of Zoetrope. Because of Zoetrope. Could you imagine what it would be like if, if George Lucas had made that movie? And if that was his next movie instead of American Graffiti after THX, or even before THX, like what would his career have been like? Like would we have Star Wars or would he have a different kind of, like is that would have been, like if, that, if they accomplished that movie, if they were able to go to Vietnam in 1970 or 71 or whatever and made that, that would have been a big deal. Like that would have been a movie that people would still remember yeah. and i just wonder where the thing is like it's such it's it says a lot about george lucas who i think he i think he's a man of comfort i don't think he would ever at any point in his career want to go to the jungle and make a movie i think he likes to be on sam stages i think he likes green screen i think just based on his output he wants a movie made in a very controlled setting that is like where he can go home at night and have dinner and treat it like a job almost. And like the idea of like, I'm gonna spend three years in the Philippines or Vietnam or anywhere and make a movie seems like not at all anything he would ever do at any point of his career or life. Yeah, it, it's crazy <laughs> to think like what, like what would it have been like? Because we only have two pre, Star Wars movies to judge George Lucas on American Graffiti and THX mm -hmm. and I mean I, I love American Graffiti and it has just this like fly on the wall kind of style and that's how George Lucas directed um, he would just shoot a scene again and again and again and the actors like I don't know what you want and he's like just like just again one more time one more time and then something would happen and it would almost be a mistake and be like, that's it. We've got it. We're moving on. There's a scene where uh, Terry the Toad, uh, Charles Martin Smith, is trying to get someone to buy booze for him at this liquor store. And a guy agrees. And the guy goes in and he runs out and he tosses the bottle of whiskey to Charles Martin Smith. He catches it. And then the store owner shoots at the guy that just ran out of the store. And they kept doing that again and again and again, like almost like a Kubrick number of takes until the guy throws a whiskey bottle. Charles Martin Smith almost drops the bottle. He catches it right before it hits the ground. The store owner comes out, shoots at the guy that ran out. And Lucas says, that's it. We've got it. Okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> was not was not in his direction. He didn't say that's what's going to happen. Like, oh, I want this to happen. He just shot the scene again and again and again until he found what he wanted. Uh, yeah, so I can't imagine like Apocalypse Now being filmed that, that way. <laughs> the reason Coppola took over was because after Godfather II, it's 1974, 76, the Bicentennial's coming up 
and all this patriotic stuff is going to happen. Like you just know it. And Coppola wanted to make Apocalypse Now and release it summer of 1976. And there's going to be all this like patriotic flag waving pro-America stuff. He was going to release this anti-war movie and he wanted George Lucas to direct it. But Lucas had finally got Star Wars off the ground. And he's like, like, wait, like I'll do Star Wars and then I will do Apocalypse Now. But Coppola wanted it done by bicentennial 1976 so he said okay if you wanted like then you do it yourself because i'm not going to give up star wars so that's how coppola became the director of apocalypse now <laughs> and it's funny when you watch hearts of darkness at the beginning coppola is all like short hair and full of positivity and it's like he seems like he's really excited to make this movie and then like three years later in the movie he's like to totally <laughs> looks crazy <laughs> turns into stanley kubrick <laughs> looks insane uh totally like just it's like going nuts in his mind if you get the soundtrack to this movie it's almost like another version of it because the soundtrack and this might be the first time this ever happened it's it's one of those soundtracks where it has snippets of dialogue on it oh i love that and uh, and it's, so you get like the movie basically uh, like it's almost like the movie on tape. It's like a book on tape, but it's a movie. So you get the music in, from the soundtrack. It's on the CD. It's two CDs. In my mind, it was like a quadruple vinyl or who knows what. But it's all the music. But then you get all the lines and all the little moments. So it feels like those like like when we were kids in the 80s, those books where you'd have the record or the tape and it'd make a beep and you turn the page <laughs> and you like listen to it. It feels like that. So if you ever on like a road trip and you wish you were watching Apocalypse Now, but you can't, just listen, just get the soundtrack and listen to it. And like, I see, I assumed that like Pulp Fiction was the first soundtrack to do that. But I guess going back, it, it was Apocalypse Now was one of the first ones to do that, of having the dialogue from the movie with the music. Yeah, so the first time I saw Hearts of Darkness was in college. My film professor, who was very into avant-garde, experimental stuff, and he didn't exactly steer everyone in that direction, but, you know, he wanted us to just experiment because, like, 18 years old in college, this is just the time to see, like, what you can do with film and what you can. We were working with Bullock's cameras and Super 8, and it was fun times. He showed us Hearts of Darkness uh, just randomly. Just uh, he said, like, you know, if you're while you're working on your on your finals, like I want to show you this. So, you know, that no matter how bad you think you have it, it could always be worse. <laughs> and he showed us Hearts of Darkness and I loved it. And it made me watch Apocalypse Now again. And again, I liked it, but thought it got weird and at the end. And I wasn't sure yeah. what I was supposed to take from it. I think it's a very inspiring movie, Hearts of Darkness, because it really shows like what we've been getting at with these episodes is that like Coppola is at his heart an artist. Like he is not just some studio filmmaker guy. Like he wants to make personal artistic movies. Uh, and he just happened to be lucky enough because of being in the Godfather to be able to get to make this movie. I mean, granted, the documentary goes on how he put a lot of his own money into it, but he had that money to put in it because he made The Godfathers. Uh, and that we talked about last episode, that's why he did the TV version was to get some money to, to put into Apocalypse Now. And it's just like the drive he has and the, uh, 
just like the audacity to like go in another country and just be like, I'm going to make the movie I want. It's going to take as long as it takes. It's going to cost as much as it costs. And it's like, I'll give you a movie, but you got to do it on my terms. We're going to do it my way. <laughs> you know, and, another way this is like the rain people is, uh, I mean, this is not true of the rain people, but like he, with apocalypse now, he didn't know the ending. He had the John Milius ending where, Willard joins Kurtz and they kill everybody because that's like the macho, you know, bravado thing to do. But he just felt that was totally at odds with everything that came before it. Um, so he didn't know the ending and he didn't know a lot of the scenes they were going to film. The whole scene of them uh, inspecting the boat, the, the Vietnamese fishing boat and accidentally killing everyone, th that wasn't planned at least not original, not before they left for the Philippines. They did that. They came up with it. He wanted to just take the whole film crew, all his resources to the Philippines and figure out the movie as they filmed it, which is how he wanted to film. And that's how he filmed The Rain People. It was a movie about a road trip. He had the basic premise and we were gonna just take the actors and the crew and go on the road trip across the movie, uh, across the country, and figure out the movie as we traveled. And like, oh, here's a Veterans Day parade. Okay, we're gonna be part of the Veterans Day parade. And James Con, you get in there, and you, you're part of the parade now. And they didn't plan that. It's just something that happened as they were making the movie. Mm -hmm. And so he, that's how he filmed Apocalypse Now. The way he filmed his like, you know, low, low budget indie art film. Yeah. But he filmed it with thirty six million dollars or whatever. Like that's, like that's the dream. When you're 18 and you want to make movies, like that's the dream is that you can make the movie you want to make however you want to make it and you have the resources to do it and the clout to do it. No one's going to question you. And then when you deliver it, it's going to win the Palm Door. <laughs> Which this movie did, right? Yep. Uh, it shared uh, the Palm Door with the Tin Drum by Volker Schlondorf. So, um, yeah, check out Hearts of Darkness. It's great. Uh, so let's talk about the Redux. So that the Redux came out in 2001, I yep. think. I saw it in college. I was taking an English lit, a British lit class, and we read Heart of Darkness. And then for extra credit, if we went and saw the Redux in the theater, we got extra credit, and I did. Uh, and the Redux was Coppola uh, just putting, like, realizing that the movie like the stuff that he thought was too weird or strange or difficult for people in 1979. He's like, they can handle it now in 2001. So he put it, he put it in the movie for the first time. And this is other than the work print, the longest version of apocalypse now, um, uh, the longest of the official versions, I guess you can get. And it is, it is interesting. Like the stuff they put in there, like it looks good. They did a good job of remastering the picture and sound. And this is of course came out when DVD was sort of new ish 2001 yeah um but the stuff that we didn't go into in the work print that was in the work print but it's but i think it's more interesting to talk about it here because we can actually watch it and it's more edited and complete like you have some major scenes in this that uh that you kind of if you watched hearts of darkness you can see them talk about it in that movie and the first uh big one is that there's more with kilgore and you see there's more of, because like in the original movie, he just says this someday this war is going to end or this war is going to end someday. And he walks away and that's kind of the end, I think, which is brilliant. And I love it. But in this version, it's like he is adamant that they stay with him and surf 
And basically Martin Sheen is trying like just trying to escape, like trying to get away from him. Like he's he's more of an obstacle in the Redux version, like the the character of Kilgore. And they get out of it by stealing his surfboard and running away. And then there's a scene afterwards where they're hiding like under like canopied tree. And you can hear Robert Duvall like on a helicopter be like, give me back my surfboard. It's the only one I have. It's hard to get. Like, please, like I need it back. Yeah. <laughs> <And> it's great. <laughs> it's great. That moment where Willard steals his surfboard. So Redux has, we'll talk about the other moment, but it has this one that oddly humanizes the main character that we're following for three and a half oh, hours. Like yeah. it's something like he does something unexpected and something fun. There was this guy who at first, you know, seems like, well, like pretty cool. He's tough. And then turns out to be like, oh, like he's a handful. I think we have to get away from him. And so he's just, yeah, any excuse. Uh, the scenes they add, there's a scene where Kilgore gives official air cavalry surf shorts to Lance. <laughs> and he's like, I want to see you do your stuff out there while the battle is still going on and the waves are exploding with like bombs that are hitting. And then Martin Sheen decides like, well, but but uh, the, the waves aren't as strong because of the wind from the napalm. Willard says, well, you know, the kid's got a reputation to protect, so that, that settles it. We've got to go. And he's trying to, Will, uh, Kilgore's trying to, like, get them to stay. <laughs> and then, yeah, he takes a surfboard and, uh, like, knocks, uh, he, like, knocks out one of Kilgore's guys with it, and he yells incoming to get them to, like, hit the deck and, and let them <laughs> escape. And then he jumps in the boat and they're all laughing. And it's this great human moment. And it's one of the only moments where you see Martin Sheen smile. Or well, he's laughing, oh. he's smiling. Yeah, yeah, it's really uh, unsettling. If, after watching the original version first to see him like, oh, he's like having a good time for a moment. <laughs> he's like, wait, he's maybe a person? He's maybe a normal guy? It is adds it just adds more humor to a scene that a, mo a moment, like the whole part with Kilgore is already pretty funny. Like it's definitely the funniest part of the movie. Like it feels almost like a Terry Southern thing. Like it's very. I feel like it's like the most like that's when the movie feels like a satire, and like like they're surfing and it's kind of ridiculous. And there's that part where uh, where he's giving the canteen to the dying man, and he hears the surfer, and he just pulls the canteen away, and the guy's reaching for it. Yeah, it's like that dark, is dark humor. So funny, it's so dark, and it's so I don't know a metaphor for America in Vietnam or Amer for America in anything. And you see the poor dying man like reaching for it, like please, yeah. the water. And like this ending, this new ending in Redux of this surfboard being stolen, and him like making like supposedly how the movie sets it up is that he recorded just like they did with Raya the Valkyries, like him just begging for the surfboard back and gave it to all the people like in the squad in the helicopter and they're flying around hoping to get the response to get the surfboard back um did you notice in the uh kilgore scene that you, arlie ermy is one of the helicopter pilots yes that's totally him right yeah it's totally arlie ermy he was a real helicopter he was a real helicopter pilot in vietnam I don't know that he was a technical advisor on this or not, but this is how he got involved with being a technical advisor much more famously in Full Metal Jacket. 
and then he talked his way into being an actor in the movie. And it's so funny he, that like two of his screen roles are in two of the most like the two most famous Vietnam War movies you know that exist. Probably. Yeah. Oh, and I, I think we forgot to mention earlier Michael Hare, who wrote the narration for this. The only other movie credit he has is he helped write the script for Full Metal Jacket. So he's just like the guy to go to to write your great Vietnam War movie. I I did not know that. Um, while we're still talking about Kilgore, just in all the versions, so John Milius, you know, he specializes in writing these tough, uh, like, macho bravado characters. He wrote Dirty Harry. You know, he wrote and directed Red Dawn. He did uh, script doctor work on a lot of movies like The Hunt for Red October. Sean Connery wasn't going to take Hunt for Red October because that I like the script, but there's not enough big speeches in it for me. <laughs> and so that producer was like, "Well, what if uh, I get what if I get John Millis to write some speeches for you?" And he's like, "Yes, that'll work." <laughs> John Millis then wrote the. Uh, he wrote the, uh, like, uh, first they trembled at the sound of our rockets. Now they'll tremble at the sound of our silence. <laughs> he wrote that. He wrote the the Indianapolis uh, speech that Robert Shaw gives in Jaws. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, Peter Benchley wrote the screenplay, and then Carl Gottlieb, maybe, did another draft. And then they still needed some more work, so John Milius came in. He wrote... He did some work, but he specifically wrote that scene. It was 10 pages long. And Robert Shaw, the actor, then took it and edited it down. And then, like, he did that all himself and performed it the whole, uh, you know. One of the great scenes in that movie. One of the great <laughs> scenes in that movie and one of the great scenes of any movies. I guess uh, Coppola says, on I think the commentary, that he showed the whole Kilgore sequence to Kurosawa. And Kurosawa gave him some feedback or like some notes on like the whole the scene with the the right of the valkyries and attacking the thing mm -hmm. that that's interesting that is like, interesting um he says that and it's one of those things you know take it with a grain of salt but that kurosawa didn't he showed it to a few people kurosawa gave him the least notes of anyone so he's like oh kurosawa you know thinks my scene is like nearly perfect he he asked me to change the least of all the people <laughs> the grandmaster of cinema kurosawa uh, yeah this scene it's all and coppola will admit that this is all john milius is writing like the helicopter set to ride of the valkyries the character of kilgore and kilgore really reminds me of theodore roosevelt hmm. who was in the army cavalry he led the charge at san juan hill of course and he actually led it he was there in with his men and he found the sound of bullets whizzing by him, like delightful. And he somehow, like if you read multiple accounts of Teddy Roosevelt at San Juan Hill, and it was actually at a different hill near San Juan. It's one of those history things that people get confused for whatever. Um, he was there like just with his revolver shooting people out in front with his men and he somehow just didn't get hit. He didn't get hit and he was not taking cover. And there's a line in here that Willard says, you took one look at this guy and you knew that uh, he was going to leave the war without so much as a scratch. Yeah. And Kilgore then when Willard says, like, don't you think it's a bit risky for R&R? &R? 
And Kilgore says, if I say it's safe to surf this beach, soldier, it's safe to surf this beach. Hell, I'll surf this beach. And he tears off his army jacket and he's not wearing anything under it, which is like shocking to me every time I see it. Like he's not wearing an undershirt or anything. Yeah, and there's bombs going off around him and he doesn't flinch at all. It's very, like, very the, the romantic vision of, of Theodore Roosevelt. Mm. It's uh, also uh, worth noting in this sequence, and we didn't mention it earlier, this is, you get a Coppola cameo. And I think it's the only time he's ever done a cameo in any of his movies ever. Right, yeah. And, it's uh, him but, and Dean Tavalaris and Vittorio Storaro, the cinematographer. Victoria Storaro is, you guessed it, the guy behind the camera. And they're playing like this documentary crew filming the storming of this beach. And they're just kind of, he's directing, Coppola's yelling, just being like, keep moving, keep, don't look at the camera, keep going, keep going. And it's such a fun uh, cameo. It's such a great yeah, cameo. <laughs> man, now that's a meta, meta moment, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only one he ever did. Uh, so back to the redux. Uh, the uh, next big scene that's in the movie is they run into the Playboy bunnies. Like yeah, on the set that was destroyed by a monsoon or a hurricane, like in real life. And they, like they, the set was wrecked, but they still filmed the scene. So it's really muddy and the set's just totally destroyed, but it works for the aesthetic of like this war torn, uh, you know, army, uh, you know, base or something. And it's the basically Willard making a deal to trade, uh, <laughs> to get fuel to like if they allow if like he will give fuel to these people stuck at this destroyed place if the men can have sex basically with these playboy bunnies who are stranded there because their helicopter crashed the helicopter it, crash it's he coppola thought it was implied that the helicopter ran out of fuel so willard okay. was helping them out by offering oh, okay. fuel in exchange for time with the bunnies for yep. all of the men and that's another thing where willard i mean it's skeevy as hell admittedly in 2020 probably in 1979 as well <laughs> yeah. but it's one of those things where like willard decides to like hey i'm gonna cheer up the men and get them some time with these playboy bunnies and it's established that frederick forrest is obsessed with one of the playboy bunnies miss uh miss may who is played by calling camp calling camp yeah who at the time i guess coppola mistakenly thought was an actual playboy bunny i don't know if she lied about it on her resume, but she's not. She's just an actress. She was actually in some Roger Corman stuff, I think. And, yeah. Um, uh, the Playmate of the Year, Linda Carp. Uh, no, sorry. Linda Carpenter is one of the Playboy bunnies. The Playmate of the Year is Cynthia Wood, and she is an actual Playmate of the Year. Um, she's was was Linda Carpenter also a Playboy person for real? Yes. Yes, she was. She. It was originally Linda Carter, who then landed. Wonderful landed wonder woman so she was like i'm not going to the philippines so then they got another playboy bunny linda carpenter to take her spot huh. um, but somehow colleen camp may i love colleen camp she's great if you don't know who she is she's in like she's clue. in clue. clue she's the french maid in clue she's in wayne's world as the wife of brian Doyle murray who's, who's the sponsor of wayne's world she she's great i love colleen camp uh, and this is great. It's a scene where it's like the men each in like one's in a hell in the helicopter, I think. Yeah, Frederick Force is in the helicopter with Colin Camp. And it's basically these weird scenes where Frederick Force is trying to get Colin Camp to pose and look like she, he remembers her in the centerfold. Right, so it's like because weird, she's like 
<laughs> she's Miss May, but she was also Miss December. And as Miss December, she was wearing a, like a black wig. So <laughs> Frederick Forrest like thought of her as like being a brunette, dark hair. And he's like, your hair was darker. And she's like, oh, my wig is over there. And so he grabs the wig and he puts it on her. And it's a really interesting scene. It's absurdly comic and it's darkly comic. Yeah. Where she is just going on about her birds. Like she trains birds. Like, like at Knott's Berry Farm, she trained parrots or whatever, which supposedly Colleen Camp really did. Like that was her own thing. I wouldn't be surprised because none of these scenes were scripted. <laughs> None of them were. There was a third scene. So you've got Frederick Forrest with uh, Colin Camp, and then you get Lance Sam Bottoms with Cindy Wood, the Playmate of the Year, and she's really opening up uh, intimately about the horrible experiences she's had with modeling and how, like, you know, she thought it was going to be this, but then they kept asking her to like, like, put a ribbon between her legs, and she didn't want to do it, but she did it anyway, because what else was she going to do? And Lance is being, so with both of these men, and both of these women, neither is really paying attention to the other. Yeah. Like, Fred, both the men are opening up to the women in their own way. Frederick Forrest is trying to live out this fantasy, and uh, Sam Bottoms is, uh, like, tenderly caressing her, but he's just kind of continuing this trip that he's already on. And uh, Colleen Camp is opening up about like her history with birds. And that's what she really cares about. And that's what she's talking about. And she doesn't really care <laughs> if Frederick Forrest is into her or not. She's going to talk about her birds. <laughs> and you get on a much like sadder uh, scale, you get that Cynthia Wood is like, she just needs to tell this to somebody and here's this guy who just happens to be like acting tenderly to her and like putting, I don't know, like camouflage or just like massaging her. Yeah. And, but Lance was going to do that to whoever he was with. You really get that feeling. There was a third scene, which was not filmed because they filmed it in the middle of a monsoon, not monsoon, a typhoon, a hurricane it hit the Philippines. It destroyed that set where all the bunnies danced on. And he filmed these two scenes. There was a third scene where Willard was going to be with third bunny, Linda Carpenter, and she was going to be really into tarot cards. And she was going to read his fortune with tarot cards. And all the tarot cards were going to, like the, you know, the ghastly, grim imagery of the tarot cards was going to reflect the things that he saw at the compound. But they couldn't film it because it was an actual typhoon that they were filming in. So that's the, the scene... The scene with Lance and the Playboy Bunny is weird because it's interrupted by them finding a dead body. Who's that dead body supposed to be? It's just like a dead body. Like, because they, they're at a, um, a, a medevac place. Yeah. Like, previous to that, the PBR, the, the name of the boat is PBR Street Gang, which I think is just totally cool. PBR <laughs> Street Gang, Patrol Boat Street Gang. Yeah. Uh, they see like a downed helicopter and it's caught in the trees and it's on, it's on fire, it's in flames. And it's this weird, surreal imagery where it's like a bug caught in a spider's web and they call it in, uh, the chief calls it in and they call it into this place in Apocalypse Now, regular version. And in the final cut, that scene with the bunnies isn't in there. So they just, you know, kind of ignore it, but 
in the Redux version, this is the, the MASH, the Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, that they're calling it into, but there's mm -hmm. nobody actually there. Frederick Forrest and Colleen Camp were together again in Valley Girl. They play the Valley Girl's parents. They play Deborah Foreman's parents in 1983 Valley Girl. So uh -huh. clearly they got along or someone liked the chemistry that they had and put them <laughs> in Valley Girl as a married couple. So at really adding, giving this whole, so those two scenes, they're odd enough that they're humorous and they're humorous enough that the, nothing's, very few things are really funny in this movie. There are things that are just so absurd that your natural reaction is to laugh at them in this movie. But you have in both scenes, uh, young Lawrence Fishburne, who's playing again, a 17 year old uh, kid from Brooklyn, like, knocking on the windows of the helicopter like hey 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 are you done it's my turn it's my turn <laughs> and frederick force telling him like get out of here get out of here get out of here. he's like hey come on man get out of and then he goes to the other place cindy wood is in the middle of like opening up you know her her vulnerable soul she turns and sees this kid and she says who are you and lawrence fishburne very politely says oh i'm next ma'am <laughs> It's funny, like, this scene, it's totally unnecessary because it's not in the theatrical cut or the final cut. Yeah. But it, it, it still works, you know, in and of its absurdity. Yeah. Um, Chief being the only responsible person in this whole fucking movie decides, well, first he asks Willard, are there any mamas there? And Willard's like, like what are you talking about? you know, meaning like, you know, black women. And then Chief decides, okay, I'm just going to wait on the boat. You know, <laughs> someone has to be the adult here. So he just waits on the boat. Unless there were some mamas, he wouldn't have waited on the boat. Yeah. No, and Chief said, so I really like Albert Hall's character of Chief. Yeah. Because he, yeah. and to some extent, Chef are the only normal people in this movie. Like Albert yeah. Hall is a responsible patrol boat chief. This is his assignment to take this guy up the river. He doesn't know where, and he's going to do it. And when uh, in this scene, when Willard says, I traded some barrels of fuel for time for the bunnies for the men, he says, all right, Captain, but when we get in a firefight and run out of fuel, I want you to tell me how good she was. <laughs> He's really good. Watching this over and over again, he was, I think, my favorite character on the boat. Like, there's something about Albert Hall that I feel like gets kind of lost. Like, people tend to, when they talk about this movie, get excited about Frederick Forrest or Lawrence Fishburne, and they kind of forget about how great Albert Hall is. Because you're right, he's sort of like the grown-up on the thing. He's sort of the, uh, the, the guy who's trying to, like, you know, like, make sure things are working okay. And he's constantly upset with uh, Willard and constantly disappointed. He's constantly telling the other people. He's so, you know, he is the Bud Abbott of the, of the group <laughs> of people. Like you don't, ex you don't, you don't recognize how good Bud Abbott is because he's the straight man, but you realize once you get older, he's actually funnier than Lou Costello. And I think that's the, the thing with these people in the boat is you're like, man, Albert Hall is actually the most interesting of all these people. Cause he's the one trying to like, they stop the nonsense and he's the constantly annoyed yeah. with what we're doing. <laughs> he's a truly normal person 
<laughs> I mean, you would think it's Willard, but no, it's really Albert Hall, who's the normal person put in this absurd situation where he's like, okay, yeah. I'm going to do everything by the book. Yeah. Uh, we're going to, we're supposed to stop this patrol boat. And we do, but it goes horribly wrong. And yeah. the look on his face when uh, Chef tells him, like, it's a puppy. She was yeah. just trying to hide a puppy. He's not smiling before that. He's not. He just has a neutral expression, but his face drops so much. And then he's the only one, too, who's like, we need to take this lady to the hospital. And then Martin Sheen kills her. And then he's really just like, whoa, what the fuck? Like, this is not, like, what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, Martin Yeah, Martin Sheen very coldly shoots her and, you know, says, I told you not to stop the boat because he just cares about his mission. Frederick yeah. Torres starts to cry. Begin. you really get to see these characters really be people. You know, they've just been having misadventures up until this point, and now, like, not even, like, not enemy soldiers, just innocent people have, like, died because of a miscalculation on their part. The other truly great face acting <laughs> in this movie is from Albert Hall when when Albert Hall sees Lawrence Fishburne die, it's like a canted angle up on Albert Hall's face. And his expression is one of pure horror. And he reaches out with his hand and you see his hand reach towards you and you know go below frame. And then he pulls his hand back and it's covered in blood. And it's just so stunned in total horror that like his expression that's something you only see in a horror movie <laughs> yeah he's good and like his like you said earlier his death scene is great where he's speared through and then he's try in his last moments he just tries to kill Martin tries to impale him on the spear that's already impaling him and like try to pull him just like I'm gonna fucking kill you like everything you've put us through everybody like it's time for you to die so the next big scene in the Redux, the one that's the most famous, is the scene where they run into the French people. And it was, of, we first all knew about it. If you watch Hearts of Darkness, there's a scene of them making the scene and Coppola saying, this is crap, this scene is terrible, I hate it. <laughs> and, uh, and it never made it in the original version. Uh, and it's just, but in here it is there, we have the scene, the whole scene of them basically floating into this, like, uh, I don't know if it's a plantation, I'm not sure exactly, do they say like what, what they it's are? It's supposed to be a plant, a rubber plantation. Rubber plantation, and it's like these French, French soldiers protecting it, uh, and then like they have this very extravagant French dinner that if you watch the making of, Coppola is like, the, the wine's got to be served at this temperature and it's got to be like the most authentic French dinner that when French people see this, they're going to say, my God, that's exactly how we eat dinner. And it's like, crazy because it's like, yeah, like Coppola's dedicated to that and, and all that comes out in the movie of um, Redux and Final Cut, because it's in both versions, is Chef saying like, like, this food is great. I'd love to talk to the chef. <laughs> and they say like you can't he's vietnamese he's like what <laughs> like a uh a, you know an, an expletive deleted made this food Are you crazy <laughs> and like it's just that and it's one of those things like maybe maybe it did help the actors 
but if you don't we're have that never line, gonna know, we're never going to notice this. I'm never going to notice it. In a way, this scene is, it's the most Coppola, which is funny that it didn't exist for people to watch until the Redux, because it feels so, this, this, to me, out of any other scene in the movie, feels the most Francis Ford Coppola. It's like, you have this attention to detail, this thing about like tradition and custom with how they're eating this meal and how they're staying French in this war-torn Vietnam, uh, the culture, uh, the family around the table, they're like eating like a family around a table. It's like very traditional, like we do this every night sort of thing. And it's got this sense of history to it. Like, so it feels, this scene feels more like the Godfather than I think any other part of, of the movie. Yeah, so let, let me ask you this. Do you like this French plantation scene? No, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate, I hate it so much. I think it's terrible. Like you can tell, like, you can tell the Coppola really likes it and you can tell that he's really into it. And even in the documentary, you can tell that he really wants this to work. He really wants this idea of feeling like they're going back in time as they're going up the river, as they're working towards primitive culture in the middle, like they're going through the history of Vietnam. You gotta have this French part, but it just like doesn't, it just screws up the pace of the movie. Like the movie's building and then they have this scene where you're just kind of hanging out with these people and it's like the seventh level of hell where you're just like listening to French people talk about it, their the politics and philosophy. And you're just like, I, like, I don't, I don't, it feels like you're like, it feels like freshman year at college. Like you're just in the dorm at 3am and you want, you know, you want to go home, but you, you, but you have to hang out with these nuts for a long time first. <laughs> like it just it's like. I'm, I might like this scene in and of itself, yes. but you're right. In the movie, in in Redux, and even in Final Cut, which is slightly shorter than Redux, and we'll get into that. Yeah, there's still more to get into. It's Apocalypse Now. Um, <laughs> it, it, it like again because it, it works in the theatrical version. With if you take this out, the movie still works. If you put it in. Like you get this political history of Vietnam and, you know, anyone who learns about the Vietnam War or, you know, who has a, you know, a parent or a relative like, like I do or like kids now, like a grandparent who is in it, uh, it's like, wait, like, why do we fight that war? Oh, because of the French, huh? What the <laughs> fuck do you mean because of the French? And this is like you know it, it's a lesson on that because already in the middle of fighting that war it was so god-awful and intense you forgot all about how we were helping the french yeah you just get all that and um like i mean i love the imagery of them emerging from the fog and they're yeah. like ghosts yeah. and the uh the the patriarch of of the family is christian christian marquand and I mean, he he gives a great he gives a great performance, and he delivers all these lines wonderfully about why they're there. Like this plantation is ours; it's been our family. It's been in our family for seventy years, and it'll be ours until we're dead. And Willard asks them, like, why? You know, how long do you think you can possibly stay here? And he says, like, you know, you don't understand. Like it's great. It's because it enhances the that character, but it doesn't really enhance the movie. 
where he says, yeah. you don't understand the French mentality, the, off, the French officer mentality. In World War II, we lose. I don't say you Americans don't win, but we lose. In Tian Bin Fu, we lose. In Nigeria, we lose. In Indochina, we lose. But not here. Here, we don't lose. <laughs> and he talks about the, the, the protest movement in France, how like they felt betrayed there, then for what they were doing in Indochina. But he, being a Frenchman who was born, again, it doesn't even, but you get the feeling he was born here on yeah. this plantation that he feels that this land is his, even though like culturally it's not his, but he's going to fight for what is, he views it as his, like regardless. And then other family members say more about how, do you know, the, the Viet Cong was created by the Americans to fight the French because the Americans wanted the French to give up their colonies after World War II and the French wouldn't, mm -hmm. so they created the Viet Cong and now you're fighting the Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that familiar <laughs> to what happened in Afghanistan? And you know, another of the family members like almost cries, says like, why don't you Americans learn from our mistakes? And you also get a love interest for a moment for Willard. Like he goes to bed with this French lady. Aurora Clement. Yeah, she like lost her, you know, she's lost everyone, lost her husband, her brothers in trying to keep this plantation. And she uh, packs a, uh, like an opium pipe for Willard and says very poetic words to him about all that matters is that you're alive. And don't you see there are two sides of you, one that loves and one that kills. It's like, am I, are you a human or an animal? You're both. Mm -hmm. And I I kind of like it, but I, I I I could also do without it. Yeah, and it, it's it's weird. It almost feels like my wife pointed when we watch this. It feels almost like a scene the studio would have made him do. So it's interesting that it's the scene that he wanted to do, because it feels like well we need to explain this war a bit, and we need to give a love interest to Martin Sheen. We need to have the lady in the movie for a second. Like we need to humanize him. And this it's like it feels like if this movie was made now, this was the scene that like the studio made them put in, but he made it. And then he himself chose to put it in, in the next, in the last two versions of it. You're right. Um, when when I saw the final cut in, in theaters and this whole scene in its entirety is in uh, Redux and final cut, the only other real laugh in Apocalypse Now happens when Christian Marquand is, uh, explaining to Willard like why they keep this plantation and everyone like gets upset and they leave the table like one by one you know don't you see this is ours it keeps our family together and there's a wide shot of the table and it's just him and Willard <laughs> everyone else is left and at the Coppola that was supposed to like echo like the Godfather movie <clears throat> Yeah, you know, Michael Corleone thought what he was doing would keep his family together, but really destroyed his family and keeping his plantation doesn't keep their family together. The scene, I, I think it's too long. Uh, I like the beginning when they yeah come out of the smoke and I think it looks like a reverse shot almost, like the smoke's going backwards. And they do a funeral for Lawrence Fishburne's character, which I like that part. I really like that part. I love that, that part's scene. really good. And they're laying like a tattered flag on his coffin or, or where the, on the body. 
but yeah, like if you can take a whole movie, a whole scene out of your movie and your movie's still fine, maybe, maybe yeah. I need to put it back in. <laughs> so then the other big scene is you get uh, Kurt, Marlon Brando, reading from Time Magazine. Like he goes into like they're holding Martin Sheen like in this little prison area and he squat, uh, Kurt comes in, squats down and he's surrounded by all like the village, like all the uh, tribal children. And he's reading from Time Magazine. And that was the other kind of big, big moment that was added to the Redux. What he reads from Time Magazine is an article saying how, even though it looks like we're not doing good in Vietnam, actually, we're winning the war. And it's shocking to see Brando's character in, like, light. It's like daylight. Uh, I wonder if it's that's... Like, there's a lot of children it. around him, and he's telling the children, like, like shh, 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 as he's reading from this magazine, which is, like, again, a total natural moment. <laughs> it's good. Um, but is that is that it? What else is there in Redux? Is there anything else that's worth uh, Those are the only real moments in Redux. In Redux, so uh, the only structural change is that in the theatrical version, when uh, we're introduced to all of the members of PBR Street Gang, it's to them water, it's to the water skiing scenes, a Lance water skiing and um, this Rolling Stone Satisfaction is playing and Lawrence Fishburne is dancing and Chief is just there kind of like, you know, like, oh my guys, they're crazy, you know, they're crazy. <laughs> That's the introduction to them in theatrical version in the Redux and the way it really happened was they had a much more like low-key entrance and Willard introduces them all through narration. And that water skiing scene doesn't happen until after they're with, after they're with the Playboy bunnies. So yeah, the, the water skiing scene happened later on. The water skiing scene is another one of these like surreal, like funny, but it's not moments. Like they're water skiing down the river in Vietnam. And isn't that absurd? But also, as they're water skiing, in the wake of the waves they're making, they are, like, knocking over uh, Vietnamese fishermen, and they're splashing water on, like, Vietnamese women trying to do laundry in the river. Shall we move on to the final cut now? Yeah, final cut. <laughs> the final cut, meaning this is the last time they're going to do a version of this movie. Yeah, I don't. Okay, so I'm, I'm fine with the final cut. Uh, as an entity, it, and it runs a full three hours long. It's like three hours and one minute, and it has credits on it. Yeah. And it correctly credits Lawrence Fishburne as Lawrence Fishburne. Not Larry Fishburne. Not Larry Fishburne, which I hear he does not like. Like he was at one time in his career credited as Lawrence as Larry Fishburne. Yeah. Like, don't call him that if you meet him at a Comic-Con or something and you're like, oh, like, you used to be Larry Fishburne, remember? Like, no, don't. It was the 40th anniversary of Apocalypse Now last year in 2019. Yeah. And instead of just remastering it, Coppola thought, well, let's just do another version of the movie. You know, why not? So they cut another version of the movie and they just deleted stuff. So they cut it back from like three hours, 20 minutes to an even three hours. It's basically the redux, but with the bunnies in their, the, the trashed mash area taken out and the, the Time Magazine scene is taken out. 
But other than that, I think it's everything that was in Redux, right? Like Yeah, the only other thing, and again, it's so small. There's like small moments taken out, like uh, Kilgore giving the surf shorts to Lance is taken out in the final cut. It, like it doesn't hurt one way, it doesn't help the other way. Like if the movie's already three hours, like, you know, three hours and two minutes isn't going to hurt. So Coppola decided, let's, let's do another cut of the movie in addition to touching up, you know, sound and effects and... Uh, they tried to really restore the sound with the final cut version, which I didn't, I mean, AFS, God bless them. They're a nonprofit. They're, they're constantly revamping their theaters, trying to make them more uh, equipped. I didn't really pick up on like the, the sound that was supposed to be enhanced in this version. Because Walter Murch was really involved. I mean, in both versions, but in this version, particularly to try and recapture the theatrical experience of the, quintaphonic sound that he had Walter Murch create. Like he wanted super multi-channel sound. Now back in 79 was, I think the first or one of the first movies to have like surround sound in the theater. It's a big deal. They have like four channels of sound going on at the same time. Yeah. Which yeah is, is common now. And you know, you try to recreate it uh, at home with your surround sound sound systems. And yeah, that came from, uh, Coppola trying to create Coppola and Walter Murch trying to create a, like an all-encompassing experience and even there were early you know that like it's like rumble box or D-Box <laughs> yes at the theater right by our house Cinemark it's called D-Box where your chair shakes uh, whenever like action happens in the movie yeah. that existed back then and he wanted that for Apocalypse Now, but if you wanted that in your movie, you had to pay the theaters for that. And Coppola wasn't going to pay anybody anything, so they didn't do that for the movie. It was just supposed to be this total immersive experience, you know, sound-wise, vibration-wise, if he could get your seats to vibrate for no additional cost. And at AFS, my seat did uh, vibrate at no additional cost, but because it, they were not bolted to the ground properly. So when someone sitting at the end of the row I was in got up to go to the bathroom, it like left a shockwave through the whole row and my chair like vibrated. <laughs> uh, Coppola says in the intro of the final cut, this is the definitive version. It's his favorite version. I got to say it's my least favorite out of all of them. I, I like this one the least because it's like either go all in, like do the redux where you're like, here's everything we cut out that was missing that we like, or have the original, like don't do this in between thing. What's the point? Like just go for it or don't go for it. Because none of these, and again, I mean, at a certain point it doesn't matter, but like none of these say director's cut. It's redux and final cut. Yeah. I don't like that this says final cut just because Coppola is still, you know, he's still alive. He's still with us. So, and if he wants to re-edit this movie today, yeah, you know, it's his movie. He can do, he can do that. Yeah. And I guess the, the reason I'm okay with him doing that as opposed to his friend, George <laughs> doing that with, with his saga of movies is that the previous versions are still available. Yeah. I and, bought the uh, like package deal with has the uh, 
theatrical 1979 redux final cut and hearts of darkness yeah. all there for me to watch and he's not taking away the previous version saying no that's wrong now you watch this one because there is no director's cut of this movie i mean that's the original version like he always had total creative control of this movie like the 79 version is the version at that time that he wanted like he wasn't forced to do changes or anything no you're right and and like there is no producer's cut because he was the producer so it's like anything that was withheld or added was only his with his the argument he had in his own mind about it and, and just like the Godfather TV version that we covered last episode, it's like it was, he was, he, like, the Godfather 2 is the movie he wanted. Like he wasn't made to change that, but he just like wanted to make a version that just kind of is a different thing and enriches sort of like, it doesn't take away from the other one. And in a way, like the Redux and the Final Cut doesn't delete the original Apocalypse. You know, it just adds to it and just makes it when you watch that one, like they all exist at the same time, very different than like you said with Star Wars, where that you can't even get that version anymore. And uh, I mean, like, and all of his pals kind of did did this. Uh, Spielberg was the first to do, like he did the director's cut of Close Encounters, where he did, or like he added a new ending and changed Close Encounters. And William Friedkin in the 90s did a new version of The Exorcist, where they added in stuff that was cut out and redid the sound and then George Lucas did the first three Star Wars movies and like fucked it totally up. <laughs> and then, and then like he was sort of the, after all of this, like Coppola sort of the last of the game in 2001 doing Redux and then now doing uh, Final Cut last year. And it's like all these, all these dudes from the seventies like feel like they just want to go back to their work and fiddle, just fiddle with it because they can. <clears throat> um, does this movie have, like, so, like, this movie has a lot of versions of it, as this two-hour-plus podcast <laughs> is proven. Is this the movie with the most versions that you can see? Like, the only ones I can think of is, like, Blade Runner. Like, if you get that one set, it has, like, four, three or four versions. That that Oliver Stone movie, Alexander, for whatever reason, has, like, a million <laughs> versions. Oh, that one. I like you're never gonna get it right. It was never right the first time, the second, third, fourth. Like you can keep making a new version of Alexander. No one's ever gonna like that movie. If we ever do an Oliver Stone director's wall, it'll be interesting to watch all four or five thousand versions of Alexander or not. There's four versions of Alexander. There's the original, there's the director's cut, there's Alexander revisited the final cut, and then much like a Friday the thirteenth movie, there was one more after the final cut called Alexander the Ultimate Cut. So <laughs> for some reason, Oliver Stone or the people who made that movie are just locked in on either attempting to make their money back or just trying to get it right and they just forever can't. It's just like pushing the boulder up the hill and having it roll back down. Like they just can't get it figured out. Whereas, I mean, Apocalypse Now, every version is a different, it's like a different story in a way. Like it's, it, they all work together. And like we said, like we walked every version in the last few weeks and never was it boring because you have the original, you have the work print, you have the redux, you have the final cut. Hearts of Darkness in a way is its own version because it's about people going up a river and on this journey, but making a movie. And then you have the soundtrack, which is a weird audio version of it. So you have like six versions of this one movie. And I'm sure there's a TV version that we didn't watch that edits the profanity and violence. And that could be a seventh version that exists. And then actually eight, if you count the version 
with the ending where they na- where they bombed the the church's thing and then he took that part out. So that's eight versions of the movie. <laughs> I like all of the versions of this movie. And if yeah, the if the plantation scene is a, a dip in the pacing, you know, that's not a big fault against the movie because it has so much working in its yeah. favor. And when I say I hate the French scene, I don't actually hate it. It's like it doesn't to me work within the context of apocalypse now it should be its own thing that you just watch and enjoy you know if this were made today this would be like the webisode this the weird internet movie they make like how fast and furious has their weird little mini movies that like vin diesel will make or whatever there's like another story of the characters in the movie that's where the french plantation scene should exist in a fast and furious extra (laughs) let's talk about the oscars Let's talk about why did a what mo- what movie could possibly beat Apocalypse Now for Best Picture? You have this movie where this guy puts his heart, soul, money, body, everything into this movie for years, and like it goes on, and it's like this amazing achievement that we're talking about still. How could that not win Best Picture when he's already won it for Godfather and Godfather Two? You're 19- right, even. Even Gene Siskel, like one of the biggest opponents of this movie was Gene Siskel, who just hated, he was with the movie while they were on the river, but once they got to the Kurtz compound, he hated it. (laughs) He hated it, but when Hearts of Darkness, the documentary came out, like two thumbs up from him and Ebert, uh, Siskel said, it's Hearts of Darkness, like young filmmakers, filmmakers working today need to watch this movie. This man is putting his whole heart into the movie they need to learn from coppola says a man who hated this movie it was nominated for eight academy awards it won two (laughs) two of the eight what did it lose to what what, what are the two that it won so it won best cinematography for vittorio storaro and what did that beat Cinematography, the nominees were Apocalypse Now, the winner, 1941, All That <laughs> Jazz, The Black Hole, and Kramer versus Kramer. Really? Oh, well, Kramer versus Kramer was shot by Nestor Almendros. Uh, yeah. Okay. It, to me, if Apocalypse Now, I mean, I would give it best picture in this lineup. I'll, I'll tell you the lineup in a minute. But the two awards it did win for are the two, if like gun to my head, it can only win two awards. It would be cinematography for Vittorio Storaro and sound for Walter Murch and Mark Berger, Richard Beggs and Nat Boxer. Walter Murch being like the lead of that team. Yeah. yeah, the sound in this movie, not just like the war sound effects of explosions and balancing all the, you know, the sound so you can still hear the actors talk over the explosions, but like the like you said the helicopter the helicopter blades merging into the fan blades, the the blades of a ceiling fan and then that merging into a soundtrack or is it just even blending the soundtrack because you have like all this percussion soundtrack, you have the synthesizer soundtrack, you have this flute, which was played by Carmine, Cop- Carmine Coppola. Like you have this choral arrangement stuff, you have like Wagner, you have the doors, like in with sound effects and just like, it's such a layered soundtrack. Like just so much going on. 
uh, just on the soundtrack. They're like, yeah, I'm glad they won the Oscar for that. Okay, so what did it lose to? What other movie is better? Why do you even have to ask? It is Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. <laughs> Kramer versus Kramer swept the Oscars that year. I'm not really not really swept. All that jazz won. No, it did it won the most. All that jazz won the second most. But I watched just before we we got on mic, I watched the uh Siskel and Ebert Oscar special from 1984 films released in 1979. And you know, they did their if I, who they think is going to win, who they want to win uh and they were both, yeah, so it's going to be Kramer versus Kramer, right? Yeah, it's going to be a really boring Oscars this year. Ebert says something like, Kramer versus Kramer may win this year, but 10 years from now, Apocalypse Now is going to be the movie that people are still talking about and debating. And he's right. <laughs> right. Nobody cares about Kramer versus Kramer anymore. Like, you great only- actors, like, like, we still love those actors, but that's not a movie that, like, nobody cares. Nobody cares about that movie. It's just like so- most movies it's just like okay you like a good drama you know like maybe the voters were like going through their divorce and their child custody and they were just like i relate to kramer versus kramer the major artistic achievement that is apocalypse now so the best picture nominees were the winner kramer versus kramer all that jazz apocalypse now breaking away and norma ray that's a that's a good lineup. Just like when we've gone through the other ones, like those are all really good movies. Like, yeah, and once again, the Coppola faces, I guess, his nemesis, Bob Fosse. <laughs> Did Fosse a, win director? No, Robert Benton for Kramer versus Kramer won best director. Because <laughs> Fosse's another per like all that jazz is definitely like the movie out of all the Fosse movies where he puts his most in it. Like that's definitely like his crowning achievement of putting everything into this personal film is all that jazz. Like, it's a great movie. Yeah, it's basically his life story and the series Fosse Verdon starring Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams basically makes that plain that all that jazz with Bob Fosse making his life story and trying to like atone for, you know, what he felt he'd done wrong in his life. The best director nominees were the winner, Robert Benton, Bob Fosse for All That Jazz, Coppola for Apocalypse Now, Peter Yates for Breaking Away, and Eduard Molinero for La Cage à Faux, uh, the film that got remade as The Birdcage. It's interesting. I feel like the Oscars, and they still do this, they tend to lean towards movies that are more actor-based than movies that are more like a director kind of personal thing. Like they're really, they love movies where actor, like it may be, the bulk of the voters are actors and they are more attracted to something like a Birdman or a Kramer versus Kramer or an ordinary people or a King's speech where it's more about the performances and less about this big experience, big personal thing. Like they, like a ra- once in a while we'll get something like that, but rarely, usually it's like, man, we love how these actors are all really good in this movie. Like the that's only- the only acting nomination that Apocalypse Now got was supporting actor for Robert Duvall as Colonel Kilgore. Who beat him? Who beat him? Well, it was Melvin Douglas in being there. They knew he was going to die, and they're like, Robert Duvall will have his time to win again. 
That is something that actually Gene Siskel mentions in his Oscar predictions is that Melvin Douglas had been hospitalized like <laughs> after he filmed this movie, but before the Oscars. And, like, and, and he states like, of course, he does give like a good performance in being there. And yeah, of course he does. All these guys do. Melvin Douglas, the winner, who um, was actually Siskel and Ebert's Dark Horse that year, the guy they thought might win but wouldn't win. They had their money on Robert Duvall. Also yeah. nominated was Frederick Forrest, not for Apocalypse Now, but for The Rose, uh, the movie starring Bette Midler. Yeah. Uh, Justin Henry, the kid from Kramer versus Kramer, got a nomination. And then Once Upon a Time, that kid, Mickey Rooney, gets a nomination for The Black Stallion, produced by Coppola. And you're right, Kilgore is a really showy role, and Robert Duvall is great in that role. He totally takes like command of the screen whenever he is during that whole sequence. And I mean, and he won an Oscar a few years later for Tender Mercies, I think was the one he won Best Actor for. Mm-hmm. So he got he got his eventually. <laughs> and Coppola already had some Oscars, so I'm sure no yeah. feelings were. Uh, and it's interesting, so this is sort of like 79, this is sort of the end, like we've been talking a lot in the last few episodes about like the 70s and 70s cinema. And we're kind of at the end of that now. We're literally at the end of it in 1979. And if you look at sort of like the other, the first, like, the, like Coppola and his friends are kind of considered the first like film school generation. And you look at what they've all were doing at the same time. It's all these kind of the biggest movies they've done. And a lot of them didn't do well. Like So in 79, you have 1941 by Steven Spielberg, a flop but a big, loud, crazy movie. You know, it's definitely like an abusive power movie of like, all right, I made Jaws, I made Close Encounters, I can make whatever I want, I'm gonna make this giant slapstick comedy that doesn't really work. And it's just like all the, everything that can break and every noise you can make, we're gonna put it in this movie. And then a few years earlier with 77, you're freaking doing Sorcerer, another movie that goes way over budget. And they go, that's another one where they go to another country and totally abuse his success and power of doing The Exorcist. Scorsese does New York, New York, trying to do this big musical that nobody wants. Uh, the Fury in 78, Brian De Palma's The Fury, actually made its money, but it's kind of dumb. It's kind of a dumb movie. <laughs> it's definitely him doing like a big, stupid thing. Uh, and then, and then uh, the only one who really succeeded in that time is George Lucas with Star Wars, who made this movie that everyone thought was going to tank. And end up being like the biggest, you know, being Star Wars. That is uh, odd because Star Wars, George Lucas doing Star Wars, and with the money it made, with the six financial success it had, Spielberg with Jaws and Lucas with Star Wars, with Star Wars, are often looked at as like the stake through the heart of the '70s director-driven films. But with both of those movies, it was those guys, they weren't following studio dictates. He made it the way he wanted to make it. Like that is a director's cut movie. That's a director, an auteur driven film. The original Star Wars episode for A New Hope, whatever, Star Wars 1977, as I call it now. Because who can even tell? And, and of course, it all comes crashing down with Heaven's Gate in 1980, the year after. And that's sort of like the last, that's it. They killed, supposedly that's what killed it. 
and we're also in sort of the end of, in many people's mind, the era of when Coppola was good. Like a lot of people say, like, this is the end of his great run, and then the rest is crap. We are proving wrong. Uh, the world is wrong about that. Uh, the name of the other podcast that I'm due. <laughs> I'll plug that right now for a moment. But uh, the world is wrong about Coppola. He, uh, like he, we're, we're going to find out while we go through these that he's gets more interesting after this, I feel. Like he is going to get into some really interesting places and really be the filmmaker he always wanted to be, making these personal artistic uh, movies. We have more or less agreed. We've either both really liked the movies or one liked a movie more than the other liked the movie. I feel like now is going to be the time when we might start to disagree uh, <laughs> about the quality of the movies Coppola puts out. And yes, it's the end of the 70s, the end of the director-driven era when all the auteurs start to stumble for whatever reason. Scorsese with New York, New York. Uh, like, yeah, uh, Friedkin with Sorcerer. Bogdanovich with... I mean, God knows what he was doing. And Coppola, <laughs> and maybe Coppola, with his next film, One from the Heart. Yeah, that's what our next episode will be, One from the Heart. Uh, yeah. And we're going to just keep going. We're not going to stop until we're done. But we're definitely the end. This is definitely the end of a chapter for Coppola. This is the end of him being sort of the king of Hollywood. But like it's still it's still working for him because like I feel like the this run of movies is why he's considered still one of the great filmmakers, like one of the great American filmmakers, one of the great world filmmakers. Like this is why we know him. This is why we're doing the podcast, was because of this this decade where he really excelled and made some of the greatest movies of all time that'll always be thought of some of the greatest movies of all time. What filmmaker has a decade like this where he starts out winning an Academy Award for adaptive screenplay? then make goes on to make like the biggest film you know up to that point in hollywood like box office wise uh critically critically acclaimed wise with the godfather then makes his own small personal film the conversation then a sequel to the biggest movie ever which some people think is bigger like is better quality wise than the first movie, and then follows it up with this iconic film, Apocalypse Now. Like, that is a hell of a decade. And then in the meantime, he is producing producing American Graffiti, The Black Stallion. He's trying to set up his own studio, which we'll talk about in more detail with, uh, with our next episode. The other thing with the Oscars I want to mention is that previously, in 1978, the winner for Best Picture was The Deer Hunter, Michael Cimino's three-hour Vietnam epic. Also up for Best Picture that year, Coming Home, movie about soldiers coming back from Vietnam by Hal Ashby. And so it was like, and this still happens with the Oscars, and it, so it happened back then that, you know, a movie will come out, but it's too similar no matter how like good quality wise it is too similar to a movie that won an award the previous year. So it's like, we can't give walk the line, you know, the Oscars it deserves because last year, you know, Ray 
got a Best Picture nomination and Jamie Foxx won, won Best Actor. So we can't give Joaquin Phoenix Best Actor for playing a real-life musician this year. We did that last year. Yeah. Deer Hunter won Best Picture last year. Like John Voight won Best Actor for Coming Home last year. So 1979, it can't be Apocalypse Now. We'll give it nominations because we can't deny the quality of you know the work that went into this movie. But we're you know skewing now to a more like something totally different from the big epic war movie to a movie a drama about divorce um i'm excited to watch bone in the heart i'm excited to watch the rest because we're not even halfway through his career here it feels like it should be the halfway point but his halfway point is at 1990 so like, is he still making things? And some people will say that the next 10 years is sort of like, this is the filmmaker falling from where, like where he was, like going to like, you know, like, like, like he's not gonna make the successful movie again, the personal movie he wanted. I disagree. I haven't seen everything that we're gonna watch, but the few that I've seen, I've really liked a lot. But I mean, it's hard also to follow something like the two Godfathers conversation at Palkins now. Like how do you follow that without just kind of going more you can't do better maybe just go to the side and make something different but equally personal and interesting which i think is what he ultimately does i'm excited i mean (laughs) father conversation apocalypse now those are all movies that make me like i don't like giddy every time i watch them i want to show them to everyone i know even if you know they might not be into it like maybe they will so i need you to see the conversation i want you to watch apocalypse now and if you've already seen it, I want you to watch it again. Maybe it'll have a new effect on you this time. Yeah, a lot of these movies coming up in the 80s, I haven't seen or I've watched and forgotten about. Are we going upriver into the yeah. 1980s with a, Godf- <laughs> with a Godfather sequel at the end? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Is Godfather 3 the Kurtz that we're going to find at the end? <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. Um, so where else can we find you? What, like You also have another website, correct? Cinemathenandnow.blogspot.com. I write about movies I watch there. I'm also watching every Best Picture nominee in chronological order. I'm on Twitter at AJGO85, same as Letterboxd. We are on Twitter at the director's wall uh you can reach us by email directorswall at gmail.com and i have another podcast uh up now i want to plug it uh called the world is wrong and i do it with my old friend andras jones whom i've known for a long time and we uh go through movies that the world hates or is ignored wrongfully and we uh, champion it we've done an episode about mad dog time aka trigger happy our second episode about the paper boy is out and by the time this is out Perhaps our third episode is going to probably be out, which is about the movie Mordecai. Uh, so it's an extremely positive podcast. You can find us on our website, The World is Wrong uh, podcast. Uh, we're also just all over the places. Google it. We have an Instagram page. I can, I'll do better next time at Sonic because I don't have in front of me where it all is because it's so new. So when we do one from the heart, I'll have in front of me exactly where you can find us. But just use Google. You're a grown up. You can figure it out. It's funny, we just did some episodes that aren't out yet about horror movies that aren't horror movies. So it's great that you talked about that with Apocalypse Now, how Apocalypse Now is basically a secret horror movie. 
also on my blog, cinemathenandnow.blogspot.com, every Shocktober, not October, but Shocktober, which is coming up upon us soon. It's something I picked up from Vulcan Video. October becomes Shocktober. I write about horror movies for the last 13 days of October. I call it 13 Nights of Shocktober, and I recommend different horror movie each night. I won't include Apocalypse Now this year. I might later on. There is so much more we could talk about with Apocalypse <laughs> Now. I'm nowhere near done, even though I'm all out of wine. But you know what? Let's leave. Let's let people watch all of them. Like you should watch every version, the making of all that stuff. And also watch Fitzcarraldo and Burden of the Dreams, which is like the other side of the coin. I feel it really complements Apocalypse Now. If you haven't seen those, it's another people going the jungle going mad and another documentary about that thing. Uh, both amazing. Is it, maybe this is our longest episode. Maybe we should just air this with all the ums and ahs and dog barks and this is our work print episode of, uh, of Apocalypse Now. <laughs> just, just put it on there, AJ. Don't do any work. Just put it out and say work print. Work print episode. Oh, that is such a temptation. <laughs> all right. Well, next time where we, like Coppola, are going to go in a totally different direction when we uh, tackle his musical drama, One from the Heart. You smell that? You smell that? Hey, fun, son. Nothing else in the world smells like that. This is the end. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You know, one time we had a hail bomb for 12 hours when it was all over, I walked up. We didn't find one of them, not one stinking big body. Smell, you know, that gasoline smell. All hell. Smells like victory. Someday this war's gonna end.